Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I am Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. <sighs> I'm sleepy. Oh, no. I'm well, so sleepy. Have you tried eating honeycomb? It's delicious. <laughs> have you tried drinking whiskey? It's delicious. <laughs> Have you tried acupuncture? No. <laughs> I'm an old white guy in Maine. <laughs> Have you tried becoming more psychic? That part, oh, Let me try that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh my gosh. I gotta save JFK. Very good. That's basically, that's the five cent summary right there. Yeah. <laughs> With a little bit of my own addition. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we were talking about 1994's Insomnia. Golly gee, is this a weird one? This is a big-ass book. Mm-hmm. Y'all ever, y'all ever look at a book and say, golly gee, what's this thing is huge? I, you know, I don't know the word count on it, though. Do you know the word count? I don't. Um, let's see. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll look it up yeah. while you, uh, you can yeah, talk, but, uh. I'm going to do books by word count. The reason mm -hmm. I ask is that this is like, you know, nearly 800 pages, so it's big. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's cheating a little bit on the page count because there's some big spaces between the lines. Mm. I have a, a sort of more contemporary paperback edition. I assume you probably got like a first edition hardcover because that's what you tend to do. I do have yeah. a first edition hardcover. I, in fact, have two. Oh, uh, two? I accidentally bought. I didn't know I already had a copy. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I have a more recent uh, paperback, recent enough that it has like the Dark Tower like tie-in uh, little icon on the back of it. Oh no! Imagine being imagine being the person who goes, "Oh, I guess I'll read the next Dark Tower novel." Mm -hmm. Reading this thing, <laughs> jeez. Yeah, and it's got a, a little preview of Wolves of the Kala in the back. So, but that was when that all locked together. So, oh. my copy and paperback is six hundred and sixty-three pages, and it's got pretty normal spacing. It would seem maybe even a little small, but yeah, this is a long book. Uh, and let's get the obvious thing out of the way here. It is pretty bold of Stephen King to have written this book and called it Insomnia and thus opened himself up to the myriad reviews which would say, wow, what a great cure for insomnia this book is. Oh, oh, Steve. <laughs> Ah, that hurts. <laughs> that I feel, I feel bad. You know what? Sometimes you got to feel bad for a millionaire. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. And this is when I'm feeling bad <laughs> for what social media is all, all right. about. Right. <laughs> That's why we invented it. Yeah. <laughs> so the people, anyway, but uh, looking at some numbers here, it, which page count wise, in terms of like the hardcover I have, is about the same size. 
It is 444,000 words, mm-hmm. according to someone on Reddit yeah. who like word counted all these. Insomnia, 223. So word count wise, it's literally half the size of it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's about the same size as the talisman. Talisman's at 243. Interesting. And that feels about right. Yeah, it does. Both of them feel too long. Yeah. Well, the only reason I was asking that and thinking about it is like, it looks like a big doorstop Stephen King book. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that. There's like a, there's a rhetoric to the doorstop itself, right? Right. But reading it, I wasn't like, oh, this is like like it is not a marathon read. Mm-hmm. Like I read it over the course of a few days, um, and it didn't feel like I was like having to hit it super hard to do that. And there's just huge space. It's like got one and a half times spacing or something on the thing. So I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a little bit of trickery here. And then I wonder, what's the trickery for, right? Like, do they just need to produce a Stephen King doorstop? Mm. And they're like, all right, this is how we do it. Yeah. And based on the time period, they said, this is how we do it. (laughs) They hit a button and that started playing. Right. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, everyone in the publishing office just started dancing. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting that you say this because uh, here is how the Publisher's Weekly Review from the Time begins. Mm. Forget the lean, mean king of misery, Gerald's Game, and Dolores Claiborne. This is the other king, the Grand Vizier of Verbosity, who gave us it, the Tommyknockers, and Needful Things. Uh, and then they go on and, you know, talk about the book and everything. Um, but I bring that up only just to say uh, we have noticed this or talked about it over the past couple episodes is that, uh, like, with the exception of Needful Things itself, uh, post sobriety king does seem to be working at a smaller scale and w- this appears to be insomnia appears to be a kind of attempt to return to an older form that is not quite the needful things doorstop it's it's something else this is actually like in, in I'll t- uh, my at the top my opinion on this book not very good <laughs> However, I have yeah. so much to say about it because it represents, I think, such a clear inflection point in uh, what King is doing with his career or interested in exploring with his career uh, in kind of this new era of sobriety in the 90s, basically. Um, and this this entire book is kind of like in dialogue with those older doorstop novels in a way that uh, I find really fascinating. Yeah, it's much like Needful Things. It is a kind of summative novel in terms of like, because we've talked about this basically for the past 10 years of King, like starting in the early 80s, basically with Christine, we are mostly getting reruns at other ideas. And I don't mean just like rewriting. I just mean that he has a stable of very clear concepts uh, and like tricks that he goes back to over and over and kind of repeats and works at it different ways. Needful Things is like a a doorstop that's doing that and doing it with his kind of creep show side of his career, right? Mm-hmm. Insomnia is doing the same thing with Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne, Misery, and then trying to staple it to the earlier Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the big mythology metaphysical Steve mm-hmm. from the 80s in particular, I would say. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and also doing the Bachman thing, like the 1970s, Stephen King is a social issues writer. Yeah. Um, and in the 70s, he was doing that through science fiction. We talked about that repeatedly, 70s through early 80s, right? Like mm-hmm. lots of these are social issuey kind of books that are processed through a science fiction framework, which is very familiar for the genre of science fiction. He's doing that again, and it is... I, it's new age uh-huh. um, is the thing that he's processing it through. Right. You know, we always talk about how Stephen King has his finger to the pulse of like what America's talking about. And it's the nineties and ufology is all around and conspiracy theories are really becoming a major part of the American landscape and new age beliefs are huge into that. In It, it is at this point in the nineties that all of the women in my life, all became fascinated with new age things, hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. now what we would call these like internet witchcraft things, right? right. It's like the tarot and all this kind of stuff. But back then that was fully within the purview of like, like tarot decks, crystals, dream catchers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, symbolic figurines, all that kind of stuff, right? So, you know, uh, a number of Harlequin statues throughout your house. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. New age, yes. right? All of those things like that was in the thing. And that that's what this book is doing. I mean, auras are are a major part of it. Right. Yeah. Um, And so that's also in the mix here, too. It's a deeply political novel, as we'll talk about. But it's also one that yet again is going to the tabloids and the fixations of modern America to work through its stuff or then contemporary America, I should say. And that makes for an extremely weird book. I think you're right. I don't think the book is very good. Um and I think the book is not very good because it mostly isn't a book. Mm. There are like six things that happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just in terms of like plot events that occur, yeah. it does not earn its its length in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially just to be honest with you, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch right now. There's a link in the description down below. $5 a month, you can get access to our bonus odes. Dropping the same day as this is our bonus episode on The Mist. The Darabont film, I finished Insomnia the same day I watched The Mist, and it really makes you appreciate The Mist. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of like a real quick, you know, we're going, I mean, it's a two-hour film. It's not that quick, but like, you know, like efficient, moving through some stuff. It's scary. It hits some big social political issues, but we'll talk about that on the other ep- episode. But it was interesting to kind of watch this Darabont adaptation that turns... Uh, the mist into like a you know adapts its uh, science fictiony fantasy kind of concept into basically a post nine eleven film. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and then to see Stephen King himself on the same day that I'm finishing this book, right, try to work through the the question of abortion in the nineties in his own science fiction fantasy kind of thing, um, and to see one be very successful and one not be very successful. Um, and it really, I think, and this is maybe what you have the most to say about, I imagine, is that insomnia points to a lot of just big gaps in Steve's consideration. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, uh, you know, I want to, for, because this is your first episode, uh, hello. And if it's not your first episode, we say this quite often, but (laughs) you know, there are just because a character says or believes a thing does not mean that Stephen King believes that thing. We gotta be, you know, that's very clear. Hopefully, mm-hmm. we're very clear on this issue. Occasionally, I see people talking about the show where they're asserting that we say that Stephen King believes certain things. And the reason we say those things is that there is a, above the characters, a narrative universe. There's a, there's a coherent narrative conceit 
right? There's a, what we might call an author function, this thing that stands in and exists. It is Stephen King, big capital letter Stephen King on the front of the book. And that thing has all kinds of narrative assumptions that it brings with us. Maybe that's attached to a physical creature we call Stephen King. He's got long claws and, and sharp teeth mm-hmm. uh, and loves to talk about his rural Manor childhood. <laughs> but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's an entity. It's a thing, this floating thing. And Stephen King, this kind of uh, authorial concept, the thing that produces novels, that produces kind of uh, sets of claims about the world that are not just spoken through character, but that are in the framing of the conversations that happen. That framing device that is Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Has got some weird opinions about what's happening in the 90s around abortion. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least is uh, uh, dedicated to making its framing around those issues very weird in an effort perhaps to appeal to some sort of generalized audience. I have it true. I, yeah, I can't tell you the reasons why the claims that are made and the concepts that are made or, or developed or the uh, frameworks that are given to us to think about this issue. I can't tell you why they are that way in this book, but I can tell you they are the way they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that and that looks really strange. Insomnia as a book presents a really, really weird set of um, conceits that you have to accept in order to make the novel work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we're going to talk about those because they're strange. Yeah, um, I had this down for like general discussion, but I think I'll actually talk about it here just just to sort of start us off. So uh, I know sometimes people want to read along or whatever. Uh, in this particular case, you can read this book if you want. I don't think I'd necessarily recommend it unless maybe you're like really into <laughs> something we're about to say, the idea of insomnia or whatever, uh, or if you're like into Dark Tower stuff, because that's the other thing that needs to be flagged here is that this book is like a really a big flashpoint in the building of the Dark Tower mythology and the uh, thing that I said a couple episodes ago in in reference to something, right, is that the 90s is the era of uh, the King brand really centering the Dark Tower as his magnum opus. And we've gotten hints of that that uh, we've been I've sort of like talked about or talked around uh, in the most recent stuff that we've read. Uh, But insomnia is really where this starts locking together, Uh, you know, just like the Dark Tower literally is in this book, right? The Dark Tower itself shows up. So uh, that's something to to keep in mind. But the other thing uh, that I think is interesting about this book is that we've got a kind of clear, not clear, but um, an idea of what King thought about this at different points in time. So there's an interview that uh, uh, someone named Wallace Strobe did uh, with King for Writer's Digest magazine, and it was published in 1991. So this is, uh, it, it's a long sort of thing uh, talking about just, you know, it's Writer's Digest. So they're talking about like King's writerly process and so on and so forth. And uh, something that's going to be important for what I'm about to read, just so you understand, like an image he's going to refer to, is that King talks about uh, the process of writing in this as being like excavating a piece of pottery from like an archaeological site. Uh, where the the sense as a writer that you have uh, an object, right, that is kind of immersed in something that means you can't have a good view of it. So you're like very delicately trying to like remove the dirt to like pull the object out, right? That the the sense that the story is a kind of thing that um, exists virtually, 
uh, and needs to be kind of delicately excavated or like recovered, right? Um, and uh, he talks a little bit about that, and then he talks about uh, places uh, or sort of like incidents where that sort of thing doesn't work out. So, uh, Strobe begins by saying, yes, okay, he says, <clears throat> every writer at some point, especially working on a long book, is going to run into a crisis of confidence where you'll be 600 pages into something and you'll look back and your first instinct is, oh, this is a piece of shit. King says, uh-huh. <laughs> Strobe says, and your second instinct is, I've spent all this time on this. What am I going to do? Is there anything you can do to get yourself past that? King says, I don't know. It's a good question. I spent about four months last year writing a novel called Insomnia. It's a long piece of work. It's about 550 pages long. It's no good. It's not publishable. And I've been writing and publishing books for a long time. Taken piece by piece and chapter by chapter, it is good. But I didn't get this one out of the ground. It broke. And sometimes I go back to it and I say, well, I could do this to it. And then something comes up and says, no, you really can't because of this. One image is that archaeological one of trying to get a story out of the ground and saying it broke. But what's a clearer one in this case is to say it's like having a pipe sculpture, except none of the pipes thread together the way they're supposed to. Some do, but a lot of them don't. So it's sort of a mess. My reaction to that was to put the manuscript away, and that's what I've done. But for other books or other stories, when you go through the process and write and rewrite and rewrite, there's always comes a point where it looks like crap. But that loss of perspective is a part of the process of writing and rewriting and polishing. You learn to expect it and you learn to count on yourself and you say, it's as good as I ever thought it that would be and it's better than when I first moved to sit down and spend all the time in the first place. I just don't see it anymore because I'm too close to it. Uh, it's like repeating the same word over and over again for 45 minutes. So uh, we can sort of, you know, uh, uh, pause there. Uh, then going on, Strobe says, uh, yet with Insomnia, you finished that? You completed that book? King says, yeah, the thing that hurts is that the last 80 or 90 pages are wonderful, laughs. But things just don't connect. It doesn't have the novelistic roundness that it should have. And maybe someday you'll get to read it, but it won't be for a long time. So, you know, three years later, this book does in fact come out. Uh, but what I think, I mean, he's, he's right about that last eight or 90 pages. That's so <laughs> well, the reason I wanted to read this is, uh, because, uh, I wanted to read it now because weirdly enough, this description that King gives of the novel in 1990 or 1991, uh, is basically how I would describe the finished novel, right? Last 80, 90 pages. Really interesting. Uh, the entirety of the book, that image of the pipe sculpture with like a bunch of pieces that don't quite thread together in the right way. That is also how I would describe the, the novel that we got. It's, it's got this weird uh, melange of elements that don't quite cohere into something uh, that feels organic. Um, and we'll have more to say mm. about that when we talk about those specific things. But that's kind of like my feeling about this book. It's a very, very odd book. And I also wanted to read that interview, if only because um, I don't know if it's in this interview or if it's in, in another one. I think I saw Grady Hendrix uh, assert this in uh, the great Stephen King reread over on tour um, that this was inspired by King. Uh, having insomnia at one point. And if we, you know, kind of like match the timelines up here, uh, the other thing that I think is worth noting is that uh, the bout of insomnia and then starting to write this book would have come at the point of sobriety. 
So this is truly a post-sobriety right. book in that sense. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that conception of the book um, that King that King is asserting here and that, that you're agreeing with. I think it hangs together pretty well. I think it hangs together as well as any of the other really big books. Um, I You know, I do think that it... Within the retrospective of the last half year or whatever or so of of books more than that, I guess, of books post it, it has given me an appreciation of it where I still don't think that is a very good book, like as a book, but as a structurally, uh, I mean, we talked about that, that you can cut half the book out. But the fact that you don't have to cut half of the book out and that it still really works really well, you know, all these pieces run into one another and they kind of they have that roundness of the novel that King is talking about. Uh, I think that looks really impressive at its length in particular, mm -hmm. you know, um, but I do think insomnia has it. I, I think that pointing at it as a structural problem. In some ways, I think that's a scapegoat. And the reason I say that is I think it is a content problem. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the book has all the resonance that it needs, that round shape that King is talking about to have, to feel like a book. I, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's all over the place. But I think that's ultimately a content issue. I don't think that that's like a um, structural problem. I don't know if King had, like, invented a better set of characters that would resonate through the whole thing. Um, you know, if he had maybe fixed the age issue, which mm -hmm. is maybe the biggest structural problem, is that um, he needs three different timelines to all work together, and and the main character has to be old throughout all of them, mm -hmm. and so it is both a long. It's presented as a long amount of time while being a short amount of time. So we well, we can talk about that, I guess. Um, I I don't know. I don't. I well, let's get into. It. Let's talk about the book because I think that. Um, I, my yeah, I guess my issue with it was not like I don't think it hangs together as a novel. Mm -hmm. I thought it hung together pretty well. I just think the pieces of the novel aren't very good. It's the the pipe structure looks great to me. I just think some of the pipes are bad. I mean, I think that's actually so. Uh, you you have uh, revealed to me something here is that King is absolutely talking about this novel in structural terms when he uses that uh, pipe image, and I agree with you that I think structurally this is basically fine. I think the pipes for me do become the content where I have like these sort of dis. Uh, there are like disparate elements in this novel that just uh, feel weirdly side like they're they're they make mm -hmm. strange bedfellows. Right. There are parts of this novel mm -hmm. that feel like they are from different novels and yet they are nevertheless being forced to be in the same book. So, yeah, let's get into hey, it. Hey, welcome back to Pipe Talk. <laughs> uh, you're your two uh, favorite literary critics talking pipe. <laughs> Oh, but no, yeah, I mean, you're right. Yeah, right. Like, uh, here's one that's really easy before we get into it. The fact that Atropos talks just like a regular ass, like, uh, just jackass guy from the 70s. Mm -hmm. That sucks. <laughs> that's bad. That's bad writing. It makes the book objectively work. That's a pipe that isn't good. Yeah. Right. Like, you get these two little alien fellas. No one, if you haven't read the book, you have no idea what we're talking about, but we'll tell you in a minute. Uh, but you get these two little fellas who are just like weird little alien gremlins who are like, don't understand humans in the least. And you get one of them, a third one, who is the biggest asshole on earth. Mm -hmm. And he talks like a rude teenager from 1988. Mm -hmm. 
it's bad. It's a, it's so it's so bad. Yep. But uh maybe we can maybe we can get into that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh begin then with the five sentence summary, which is yours this time. So the five-sentence summary is the part of the show where one of us, this time it's Cameron, uh, summarizes the entire book off the top of their head, uh, you know, from beginning to end in five sentences. And this is, you know, something we're coming up with in the moment, uh, not reading off a Wikipedia summary or anything like that, doing our best, our damnedest to get sometimes a lot of content down into five sentences in a way that makes sense. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you now. Ralph's wife, Carolyn, dies. Period. He begins to experience insomnia. Semicolon. He's got a ragtag group of elderly people, of which he is also a part of. (laughs) Period. Uh Uh, He begins to see auras comma and he develops metaphysical powers that introduce him to some weird little alien guys open parentheses one of which is the most evil little alien guy close parentheses period okay Ralph's friend Ed has decided to drive a plane into an, a, a, a civic center meeting that exists to support an abortion clinic, comma, and he uses his magic abilities to stop that guy from doing that. <laughs> Period. All of that is resolved, and Ralph has saved a little artistic boy who we will learn about in two years, Mm -hmm. period. (laughs) All right. That's it. I think that's five. Yeah, that's five. You got it. (laughs) I mean, some, I think it was was wrong. It's Rom in the Discord has pointed out repeatedly that we've done four sentences more than once. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's why uh, I need to adopt your protocol of uh, speaking the punctuation. I think it's it's pretty consistently across both of mm-hmm. us. I think sometimes we just get, we you know, sometimes those commas get complicated. Yeah. But that, that's what the book's about. The book is about, on one hand, these elderly people. So Stephen King saw the movie Cocoon. Yes. Let's start from there. 1,000%. <laughs> I was thinking about that the entire time. I was like, Steve watched Cocoon and was like, I want to do my version of this. Stephen King saw Wilford Brimley in 19-whatever's Cocoon and said, if Ron Howard can do it, why can't I? (laughs) Isn't that a Ron Howard? It is. It is, in fact, yes. Okay. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, it's about these elderly folks who uh, get insomnia, essentially, and they start seeing uh, little alien guys, little metaphysical alien guys. And uh, there's this whole set of anti-abortion protesters slash violent terrorists. And they got to stop them. Mm-hmm. I mean, like hundreds of other things happen in the middle, right? <laughs> it's, it is the minutia of the day-to-day moment. It, it is the uh, Stephen King outlineless nightmare behavior yeah. just going on. Like every 10 pages, some other 
pointless thing is happening. We have to. And I enjoyed. <laughs> we have to learn yeah, so much about how Ralph makes dinners for himself. Yes, good God, his bachelor's dinners. I, you know, put some hot dogs in one pan. You put some beans in another pan. You, you can't get sleepy, so you gotta eat hot dog. You know what I mean? It's Where's like, my Lipton cup of soup? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, so forgetting where his Lipton cup of soup is becomes plot critical. We spend three hundred pages thinking about that soup. Uh, it, but here's the thing. This is the wild stuff about it, which is like. I didn't really mind it all that much. I think I actually think Ralph's small-time problems are mostly fun to read. Mm-hmm. They don't go anywhere. You know, they don't accrete into anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like they slowly build to something that matters. It's really insomnia sucks so bad. And then other shit happens. Mm-hmm. And then it seems also that Stephen King forgets that his characters are undergoing extreme insomnia <laughs> about at the two-thirds mark, and then they're like, oh, I'm sleepy. Better get some coffee. Yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> and it's like, all right, man. Like, like, we can just, you know, I don't know. It, there's something very funny about that the core concept gets in the way, and he just dismisses it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we don't need to deal with it. <laughs> but the first, like, 250 pages or so are just like a slow, you know, revolving slide into how much it sucks to have insomnia. Yep. Yep, that's basically it. Uh, And writing about, so Ralph is 70 years old. We'll just like, you know, Mm. mark that there uh, because that is a, a kind of new thing for King. He's written older narrators before, obviously. That's like one for the road. He's written like that. But Ralph is interesting because he's not the uh, dude sitting around in like the local convenience store, like rather the general store, right? That's the type of old guy. Like he's not a Judd Crandall, mm-hmm. the type of old guy mm-hmm. that uh, he's written before. Uh, Ralph is interesting because he is like, <sighs> he he would be, in another Stephen King novel, uh, the character archetype that I have referred to as the cool older dude, who is like best friends with the more King-aged protagonist, right? Or like sort of a mentor kind of figure. What's really delightful about this novel is that because Ralph has been pushed into uh, the the protagonist position, we actually have to come up with a second old dude to be the cool older (laughs) dude (laughs) to be his friend. Bill McGovern has to be invented to be the even cooler older dude. Yes! Uh, uh, examples of these characters are uh, the grandpa from uh, the Tommyknockers, uh, the teacher from Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of some other cool older dudes just off the dome. I can here. think of some, but they're like in the future for us. Oh, gotcha. gotcha. Um, well, oh, those Glenn are Bateman we've already read. is one of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Glenn Bateman is definitely a cooler old. So that kind of guy. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Ralph would be that guy in some other person's story. Mm-hmm. But he is 70. J- to be honest, doesn't feel like a 70-year-old man, even a little bit. No. He, d- he doesn't even think in terms of, like, he 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 is so, he's, he's Stephen King's age, like, in his head, mm-hmm. right? Like, King can't work his way into what it would be like to be 30 years older than he is at this time, it seems like, or isn't interested in doing that, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, all of his memories are, like, things that happen in other Stephen King books. You know, it's very much... Um, the like stand by me memories when he's thinking about his childhood, mm-hmm. and then King has to be like, Oh, yeah, and this happened in 1936, yes. um, <laughs> not 1955. 
uh, which is just yeah, very funny. Like, yeah, but, sure like, thing. I remember World War II. <laughs> right, right. They, and people have to be like, "Did you serve in the war?" And he was like, uh, uh, "Yeah, yeah, I served in the war. I was in in the rear guard, mm-hmm. the rear echelon." <laughs> and then they have to explain to him like what the echelons are. He served in the war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, there's some very funny stuff going on with the the way that a Keem- Stephen King book works structurally, and the way his protagonists tend to work. Um, that he has to, it seems like he has to keep reminding himself that this character is 35 years older than, you know, the average Stephen King character, mm-hmm. which is very funny. But he does, I, I do like that, because you're talking, he's not like one of the old guys, you know, like in One for the Road or any of that. Mm-hmm. And, but I do like that he's like the guy who would show up right after Hap turned off the pumps. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He He's the guy who's, like, making his way around town because he goes to all those places. Mm-hmm. You know, he hangs out with some of those people. They, they come in and out of the novel, these other older characters um, who are, like, playing chess all day or are, like, uh, I, yeah, I guess that's the uh, going out to the, quote, unquote, the extension, which I still don't really know what that is. Yeah, it's a little confused. I mean, my understanding, I guess, is that at some point, Derry, like, extended uh, one of the streets in order to provide, like, an access road to the regional airport, and mm. this is this is all, like, pure hypothetical stuff, right? I'm not, like, basing this on something in, in the uh, novel. It's just, like, my sense no. of how cities develop is that... Uh, this this road was extended to provide, to provide access to the airport and maybe like as part of some sort of like sop to the community to be like, I'm sorry, we're making this ugly extension access road. They put like a park right off the side of it where uh, it turns out all of these elderly people tend to like, you know, congregate and chat and play chess. Yeah, that is what it seems like. That, that sounds like accurate. I just didn't know if extension was like. A known New England thing. You know what I mean? I didn't mm-hmm. know if it was like a keyword in human life or a thing that is made up for the novel. Uh, but uh, it sounds, sounds like a thing that was made up for the novel. Yeah. Uh, so. But yeah, he's running around with all these guys. You got Bill McGovern. Mm-hmm. His cool older, his cool older gay friend. Yes. <laughs> which, which we got to be reminded about that. Uh-huh. It ne- never really comes up, although maybe it does come up. It's a little unclear about his friend who was dying. If there yes. was a like, uh, uh, because his, it, I mean, it doesn't really matter. He ha- he has an older Bill McGovern, the cool older friend, has an even older friend mm-hmm. who dies in the novel, um, and he dies. Um, uh, 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 unclear about what he dies from, but it, McGovern tells the story about when he was a teacher because he was a high school teacher that eventually became a college, uh, uh, like teacher at the local college. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but you know that guy could clearly clearly knew that Bill was gay, mm-hmm. and like seemed to on one hand kind of police that, but on the other hand accept him, mm-hmm. right? And this is would have been like in the sixties, maybe. Mm-hmm. In the timeline of maybe the novel, even somewhere 50s. in there, yeah, maybe even fifties, because all these characters are fairly old, um, and it's a little unclear if that meant that, like, uh, you know, uh, kind of an older gay man recognizing the younger gay man. That's kind of how the story's written, but also Steve will not put his foot on the gas for anything like that, mm-hmm. so it's a little hard to know. Uh, but I thought it was interesting, kind of a little complication in there. Yeah, um, it's fascinating. But yeah, you got Bill McGovern. He's dressed really nicely. Who Who are some other? Can we talk about some other like? side cast of characters just because there's so many that are going to come up in the discussion that it actually matters. Oh, uh, Faye Chapin. 
who's the guy who is like absolutely into chess and wants to organize all the chess tournaments. And he's kind of uh, a bit of a grouch, too. That's right. Uh, we got him. Uh, Dorrance Marsteller. Oh, yeah. Who's uh, uh, he's 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 batty, right? He's like, oh, the weird batty guy who hangs around and he's always got a book of poetry with him. And uh, whenever he talks, he kind of seems like he's not really listening fully to the conversation. He's always a little bit off in his own little world. Uh, spoilers, dear listener. He is, in fact, off in his own little world, except it's not his own little world. It's a much bigger, broader world than anything we could imagine. Here's a question for you. Uh huh. Do you think he's like a doctor that became a person? Uh, that's an interesting thought. I did not take it that way, but uh, I think you could. The way I took it was uh, maybe less generous because I understand how uh, King tends to write these types of characters where uh, Dorrance is presented as uh, it. It is not that he has an intellectual disability, I think, but he is presented as sort of fundamentally simpler um, and like sort of purer and like more good uh, in a way that like puts him in touch with like the truth of reality in a way that uh, uh, a lot of other people don't get. Right. Stephen King tends to do this uh, a lot and it usually uh, basically shows up in terms of ableism, right? Uh, a character yeah. with an intellectual disability actually has, surprise, uh, some kind of, like, psychic connection to the numinous. Yep, I was looking at a list of books that are coming up, and uh, we're, we're we're getting down into the R.E., that specific thing. Uh-huh. Like, we're gonna get, we're gonna get a run. Oh, God, we are gonna get a run. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And also, he likes poetry, so there must be something up with him. <laughs> Stephen King novel. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think I, I think that's probably the right read, but, uh, you know. Yeah. I think there's some interesting ambiguities in there. Also, I like we that you tr- called him a doctor, and we haven't even explained the context, the very specific context for what that means in this book, because if someone hasn't read it, you just said, like, do you think he's a doctor who became human? <laughs> yeah, I know what I said. <laughs> Uh, oh, we got Trigger. Oh, yes, Trigger. Uh, I don't know how to say the last name. Vachon, I guess. Yeah, is he from? He, I he's, missed. He's it French Canadian, I think. Oh, he's French Canadian. Yes, that's why that he, makes a lot more sense. Yes, that's why okay. he talks with such a weird uh, uh, dialect voice. I thought maybe he was like a Louisiana guy, mm-hmm. and I knew like what after the first scene with him, I was like, okay, he's got an accent, it's some sort of French accent, obviously. And I think I missed where he was from at the very first time it was said, and I did not want to go back mm-hmm. <laughs> to figure it out. And I was like, all right, you just got to think. Oh, but French-Canadian, that makes sense. Stephen King loves a good old uh, French-Canadian connection to me. Mm-hmm. That's happened a few times. Um, oh, so Lois. Okay, I accept it. And Lois, yeah. yeah. Lois, are, uh, 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 like the dark horse secondary protagonist who emerges in the middle of the book when it feels almost like King just decides, like, oh, Ralph needs a love interest. There is something deeply fucked up about the way that Lois is written uh-huh. here that really is like Stephen King writes several stories in which women are central characters and he seems really invested into thinking through women and women's position in the world and the kind of structural inequalities that happen um, around women. This is a book that is fundamentally, uh, you know, about abortion, right? It is the central axis through uh, around which everything re- resolves in the whole universe, literally. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and sorry, hold on. Uh, uh, so uh, here, let me give you while I'm in the middle of ranting. <laughs> would you uh, would you like to guess what kind of very weird aerial vehicle has been flying over my house for the past two weeks? Um. Uh, for two weeks straight, it's just been going around and no, around up there. Not two weeks straight, just intermittently over the past two weeks. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's a an, an ex- so it's an aerial vehicle, so it's something you would expect mm-hmm. to be flying. Yes. Okay. It's not a boat. Okay. Or anything like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not a not, not a Ford Galaxy. Uh, no, it's not. Mm, I'm going to say an ornithopter. It's not an ornithopter, although it's, cl- it's the closest that technological man has come to the ornithopter. <laughs> it has been ospreys. Really? Yeah, it's like a fucking Metal Gear Solid going around in the sky around my house. They are flying extremely low, right above my house. And some days there's four in a formation going back to back. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. We got spec ops yeah, going on say they're keeping in the sky above my house. It's, it's weird. Hmm. I don't understand. Uh, they're beaming but, up this uh, conversation anyway. right now. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, get a little literature in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all right, let me go back to the thing I was ranting about before I ranted about this thing, uh, which is that Stephen King writes all these novels about women, right? Mm-hmm. And it clearly seems interested in these, and then writes maybe the most sexist thing, you know, schematically sexist thing he has done in a very long time. Yeah, the amount of times that Ralph has to be like. Shut up, Lois. Men are talking. Uh huh. In this novel is wild as hell. And yeah, this is one of those things where a uh, uh, character and narrator and author. Uh, it's useful to keep these things distinct, but it's also useful to be able to ask questions about those things because there is straight up like a moment where, uh, like basically Ralph and Lois get into like a little argument where Ralph is straight up being sexist. And he's like, uh, I have this in my notes. I just wrote sexist Ralph 447. Um, uh, so there, there's like, that's my forums username. Yeah. <laughs> sexist Ralph 447. <laughs> Sexist Ralph 447 is coming in to tell us about his uh, modern warfare clan. Um, That's right. <laughs> uh, 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 but basically, like, uh, you know, what happens in this scene essentially is like uh, Ralph and Lois have kind of a little argument over some process or some, something not really terribly important, but it comes down to him being like, it comes down to them talking about like their generation and sort of like what he expects a man to do, et cetera, et cetera. And so there, there mm-hmm. is some awareness. And I think this is like uh, what you were talking about with like the age of these characters. There's some attempt here to be like, well, this guy is 70. He's going to have some slightly retrograde opinions about women. And in fact, like him and him and uh, Bill, uh, like, uh, uh, belittle her constantly behind her back right and this is a thing that he Mm -hmm. kind of comes to feel bad about because bill very condescendingly refers to her as our lois uh specifically as his that's like his term it is it is meant as a term of endearment but it is also a term of uh uh, belittlement and condescension because it is the uh phrase that he uses when he feels like she's being a silly feminine foolish whatever right so uh, yeah, so, like, all of that's there, and also, uh, it, it 
maybe almost feels like when Lois does emerge, because she's kind of like a, a sort of secondary character along with all these other people that we've been talking about, she feels like she's just on the orbit, on the periphery of things for the first third of the novel. And then in the middle, she runs straight into center stage because it turns out the insomnia that Ralph is suffering that's uh, made him start seeing all of these otherworldly auras and things like that. It turns out she's suffering from it too. And not only that, but she has been suffering from it earlier. Like, she has been having it longer than him and has kept it secret longer and therefore has been starting to see things uh, before even he did. And I think maybe this is what you're gesturing at when you said she's in, like, this structurally misogynist position. Uh, she just didn't have the gumption to make it into an adventure like Ralph has. Yeah, this this becomes at the halfway point. It becomes literally a boy's adventure. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you transported these people to being 14 years old, you can see the cover of the novel of Ralph holding her hand and like dragging her through a tropos's like evil apartment or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I can see the cover art to the <laughs> to the thing. Um, and uh, I, even more than that. Right. Like when the big metaphysical things start happening later. Right. Ralph can access planes that are higher than she can go. Mm -hmm. Ralph is the one who is able to see the Crimson King and deal with all of that. And she just has no access to it. Ralph is the one who makes, makes the deal with uh, the two doctors in order to sacrifice his life to do all the stuff, right? Like literally at every opportunity, she is brought up to be equivalent and perhaps even more advanced than Ralph is in many of these things. And she cannot, in, in the magic of this universe, I keep saying metaphysics, but truly, there's a kind of magical, extra-worldly thing happening. Mm -hmm. Every time those things are occurring, um, those things are for Ralph to access and for her to react to, right? Mm -hmm. There's a structurally misogynist position here, and I don't say that to be like, oh, Steve, you monster. This is a common uh, maneuver, right, in fantasy literature in particular, which is that our protagonist, who is often a man, has access to a system in which he is just uniquely good at. Mm -hmm. uh, and here in the book, Steve even puts down, you know, this is classic Uncle Steve, right? He lays down tracks to be like, she could be better than him at this thing. And yet, uh, uh, she's not. Right. right. Uh, at every turn, it is Ralph's story. And of course, it is Ralph's story. Right. Like, I'm, I'm not naive on this. Right. This is a story about this old man coming to terms with being an old man. That's the purpose of the thing. Um, but it puts Lois in this very weird position of just helper. Right. Fantasy helper, which is very common for, um, you know, women in these types of stories in fantasy stories in particular. You can look at the Chronicles of Perdane. You can look at that devious Harold Potter, right? <laughs> this is always the kind of maneuver that happens mm -hmm. um, in in a very traditional um, fantasy setup. So it's uh, just a bummer, right? Like uh, for, and, and especially it's a bummer because he does the thing uh, of diving into Lois's perspectives a few times, right? Um, staying really focalized on Ralph, but we get the whole thing about her son and daughter-in-law trying to put her into a retirement community mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And it's like good, you know, she, she is a well-written character, uh, but the structure that character is put into is really unfortunate because it means that she cannot really be an equivalent character. Right. Yeah. And in fact, her desires have to be destroyed for the, the book to end properly. Right. Like being a fantasy, mm. right. Cause it is a fantasy. It is your, your most dreaded form. 
Michael. Yeah. A restoration fantasy. <laughs> and things have to be put right at the end. Yeah. And things are put right at the end by a woman's very rational and normal desires have to be sublimated under the self-sacrifice of a man in order to save two other women. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's it's a real... At every turn, this keeps happening. And I, I, I think that mostly has to do with genre. It mostly has to do with the way he's trying to make it novel-shaped, right? The, the fantasy novel shape here that Stephen King is most comfortable in is not one that's particularly equitable um, in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. And that's not a reason to throw the book out. That's not a reason not to talk about it. But it is a thing I think you have to kind of address and think through, um, is that the novel can only go into certain places, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's see, that's Lois. Are there any other, uh, sort of side characters? You want to talk about these little doctors? Or? Well, uh, so we can either, we, we, we can move into, like, the magical characters, or we can talk about Ed and Helen, uh, in that plot line, because those, those are the other human characters who matter here. Let's talk about Ed and Helen, and let's talk about our magical characters. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Ed Deepno is the kind of... Mm, mm, at first, the primary antagonist of this book, uh, and Helen is his wife. They are a younger, uh, they're, they're a yuppie couple, uh, that live, like, down the street from Ralph, uh, in, like, the same neighborhood as Ralph and Lois and these other characters, and they have a daughter, an infant daughter at the beginning who becomes a toddler-ish by the end, uh, her name is Natalie, uh, and the entire thing here is that, Actually, so you mentioned this uh, at the beginning. There's a lot of like weird time skipping that happens. The novel begins a year before it begins. <laughs> we get like a prologue where that's true. That's true. Right? I forgot. Right. right. We get this prologue where uh, Ralph is going for walks um, because his wife is sick. Carolyn. Actually, we as we could have talked about Carolyn, Ralph's dead wife. The problem is there's actually not much to say. She is basically just Ralph's dead wife. Um, uh, she is his dead, not his good wife. <laughs> this book goes out of its way to be like, a, I could have had a better first wife. Yeah. Yeah. It's, re- it's really unfortunate. Uh-huh. Uh, so she has a tumor. Is that right? She, she has a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and she's dying, uh, and the doctor, their doctor, uh, misdiagnosed. He didn't understand the, the gravity of what was going on. He thought it was something else. And, uh, by the time they realize what's going on, it's too late and Carolyn is dying. Uh, and so Ralph gets into a habit, uh, kind of out of his, you know, sort of like stress and anxiety or whatever for, to go for walks. Um, this is interesting, just like flagging this, because we already know that this is one of King's strategies for when he gets writer's block. King goes for lots of regular walks, uh, thinks about his stories, looks at stuff, whatever. And we also know that, uh, in five years relative to the publication of this, while on one of these walks, he is going to be hit by a truck. So, um, just noting all these, I guess, biographical convergences or whatever. Uh, but Uh, yeah, it's, uh, extremely weird. (laughs) Uh... (laughs) Just extremely weird. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, Ralph is out for a walk and he is walking by the airport and he runs into, well, he, he witnesses a minor car accident where Ed uh, is leaving the airport for question mark reasons. Uh, Ed is like clearly agitated and in a hurry. He hits a man who is like carrying, um, he's like, he like works for a landscaping company or something. So he's uh, carrying, he's, he's driving around barrels of um, fertilizer 
and uh Ralph watches him accidentally T-bone this, watches Ed accidentally T-bone this guy. And then they kind of get into this weird shouting argument. Ed is acting really weird, like very angry, irate, confrontational. And he starts saying uh, like half cogent things about like dead babies being in these barrels of fertilizer and how all of these aborted fetuses are being taken over to this other town where they're burned in a junkyard and just strange stuff. And he's like, this isn't the, the Ed that I know. Uh, and then, uh, the Ed that I know voted for Clinton. Yes. Right. <laughs> he wears John Lennon glasses. <laughs> right. He listens to, how bad can you be? he listens to Jefferson airplane. Uh, uh, but then um, uh, that's sort of like that's the the uh, prologue, right? Like that's an altercation. Uh, eventually, Ed is shown that there are no fetuses in the fertilizer. And then he like is like, well, we'll see. And then he goes off. Um, well, he starts saying all kinds of weird curses. Uh huh. Yes. You know what I mean? He's, say, he's saying things that are not uh, they're not yuppie talk. No, you know? he's not saying, gosh, darn it. I hit I hit the car. Uh huh. You know, he's not in your imagination. This is uh, uh, the the guy who gets in over his head in Fargo, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> but he's not that guy. He's not acting like that guy. He's acting like a much worse guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then a year later, like Carolyn dies um, not too long after that. And then like a year later is when the novel really starts. Ralph has been living on his own for a year. Uh, and then Ed ends up um horrendously beating uh, Helen, his wife, and Ralph, who is at, like, sort of the the street convenience store shopping, uh, sees her walking down the street, uh, very bloodied, um, very beaten, holding uh, uh, their infant daughter, um, and it turns out that uh, Ed did this because the wife signed a petition uh, in support of woman care slash Susan Day. So Woman Care is a local women's clinic that provides abortion services in Derry. This takes place in Derry. I don't remember if we've said that at this point. <laughs> this this takes place in Derry, the place where it took place. Uh, the And good golly, they talk about the storm from 1985 multiple times, and it's always uh, phrased in that like very uh, portentous way. Uh, it's never just like, oh, yeah, that storm back in 85. It's always like that big storm that took out most of downtown in 1985. Anyway, uh, uh, that's the, there's this abortion clinic. There is a protest against that. And then uh, in response to the protest against the abortion clinic, uh, people in kind of the, uh, I don't know, women's group that has something to do with the, the clinic in whatever way, uh, they have uh, petitioned to bring to Derry a woman named Susan Day, who is um, a feminist activist and particularly a strident abortion rights advocate. Uh, and it turns out Ed is like uh, off the rails type anti-abortion. And so he sees Helen's name on this petition because it's like hanging up on like a corkboard at the grocery store or something. Um, and that is his reason for severely beating her. Uh, but he also, uh, during this confrontation, cause Ralph, like after seeing to Helen and Natalie goes down the street to talk to Ed and Ed is just like sitting in his front yard with like the lawn sprinkler going, listening to the radio as if, uh, you know, it's like a perfectly normal day. And when he talks to Ed this time, trying to figure out, you know, Hey buddy, like what the hell's your problem? Ed gets even weirder, starts talking about, 
things that he has maybe been seeing uh, that like, actually, I think maybe it's in the first altercation that he mentions, like seeing like dead babies underneath bushes and things like that. Uh, But he starts talking about even weirder things here about people who may be talking to him and about uh, uh, centurions, uh, these sort of like figures of malice or something who are serving something called the Crimson King. Uh, uh, real wacko stuff. And then uh, Ed gets arrested. Uh, he and Helen separate. Uh, Helen goes to a women's uh, shelter that is run by or affiliated with uh, women care in some way. Uh, and Ed becomes increasingly dedicated to anti-abortion activism within Darien, becomes like a more and more prominent face of the anti-abortion groups, uh, but also increasingly more radical. And, uh, we can, like, we can have an entire other discussion about, like, the way that this novel presents not just the anti-abortion movement and the people who are in it, but, like, the process of, uh, organizing and radicalization within that movement, because that's like a... Oh, we'll get there. We got plenty of time. We don't have to talk about it right now, but yeah, I mean, you can't, I don't think you can talk about this book without actively looking at that. Yeah. So yeah, but just to like put these characters kind of in their places and who they are and and kind of the role that they play. Ultimately, it turns out that uh, Ed has been suborned by a supernatural force, uh, the Crimson King. Uh, through an agent who we will talk about uh, in a little bit. Uh, And his ultimate kind of end goal is to carry out a suicide flight on the Civic Center in Derry where Susan Day is getting ready to speak. He's made like a plastic bomb explosive and he is going to, he was at the airport, it turns out, because he was taking flying lessons and he is going to crash his plane into the Civic Center and kill Susan Day and everyone else. Um, And that is half thwarted. Um, by, by the end, like Susan Day does in fact die in that attack, but, uh, don't worry folks, the person who was really important did live. And we will talk about that as well. (laughs) Yeah. Every person who is named, who is a part of either the, uh, uh, the like health clinic or the anti-abortion movement, like the, these straight up terrorists, Mm -hmm. I mean, they are presented as and called as such. Mm -hmm. Uh, every single person who has a name is murdered. Yes, right. On both sides. Uh, on both sides. <laughs> both sides, right? Everyone gets killed. Um, and, and Susan Day here, if you, if you don't have like a good like mental image, she's clearly being positioned as kind of like a Gloria Steinem. Yes. Um, uh, Gloria Steinem with, but with like the politics of Florence Kennedy, right? Mm-hmm. If, if those names mean things to you. Um, you know, a, uh, and every, and everybody's a little bit wrong on this one, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the way the novel goes. We'll talk about it in a bit. But yeah, but he gets... Uh, who's suborning him? You know, you said uh-huh. that, that that Ed is getting... Uh uh, you know, some something's controlling him. Mm-hmm. So what's controlling? So him? Ed is being manipulated by an entity uh, that they, the Ralph and Lois, come to call uh, a tropos. Rumpelstiltskin. Rump- oh, I'm yes, sorry. Rump- Rumpelstiltskin <laughs> actually is what he is. Basically, <laughs> he's right. Yes, he's Rumpelstiltskin. Uh, yeah, no, he is uh, a, a part of a class of beings called the Little Bald Doctors, and there are three of these. Um, uh, there's they, they start by calling them, you know, Docs 1 and 2, uh, and then the, the mean one is Doc 3, uh, but they eventually get names that are borrowed from the, the Greek fates. Um, so the good ones are uh, Clotho and Lachesis. 
and then the third evil one is Atropos. Um, but uh, uh, basically, these they, they call them the little bald doctors because uh, and let me say. I love this idea. This is one of the things. This is one of the things about this book that I actually like the whole progression of like Ralph slowly waking up earlier and earlier and earlier. Right. The slow and like nightmarish onset of the insomnia, the way that that builds to him suddenly starting to see like all these colors around everything, all these auras. Like, that's such a good, interesting, original kind of buildup. And then, like, the culmination is he starts seeing these, like, little guys running around doing things. Uh, and they call them the Little Bald Doctors mainly because they wear, like, smocks that are con- they're constantly uh, compared to, like, the smocks that doctors on, like, TV medical dramas in the 50s wore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have those, but they're also, uh, in the way that they're described, likened to like, um, you already mentioned like, you know, nineties, new age ufology stuff. They're, they're likened a little bit to like the grays, uh, in terms of like how they look, they are, uh, anthropomorphic, right? They're humanoid. Uh, and at the same time, they are like simplified or sort of like smoothed out right they just have like kind of a face and nose and mouth and eyes and uh they don't have a lot of distinguishing features uh but clotho and lachesis are uh clean they look friendly they have like a, a you know good green auras about them and they carry a pair of giant scissors because uh, it turns out these auras that ralph and lois can see uh everyone has an aura uh, everything has an aura, actually, but people and or living things, I should say, uh, have like a, a tippy top to their aura right at the top of the head or whatever. Or in the dog's case, it's uh, at the tippy top of her uh, little snout. Uh, there's like a line that just like ascends from the aura and goes up into the sky and they start calling these balloon strings uh, and the uh, doctors can cut these and that kills you. Uh, not necessarily immediately, uh, but that is what happens, right? Is that your your line is severed and then you die. And Clotho and Lachesis are like part of the natural order, right? They go and they like cut your line when it's time for you to go and then you move on. It's all like very peaceful and, and, and uh, restive and whatever. Um, whereas uh, Atropos, he's got a dirty smock. He's he's grody. He's gross. He doesn't keep himself clean. And he's got a big rusty scalpel. And he goes around and he like cuts people's balloon strings and they don't die immediately. They just keep going and they suffer. Yeah. And then they die in like horrible, awful accidents. And he also uh, collects trophies, right? He takes like Bill McGovern's Panama hat and he takes Lois's earrings. Uh, You know, he's it's all like it's serial killer stuff, right? Like the idea here is that he is that early on. Ralph says that he's like gone rogue. And it turns out that's not quite the case. Question mark, I guess. Um, No, no, it's not. And and what's really interesting is that the fan discussion around this that I remember, you know, reading on my Stephen King forum days myself, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, reading the stuff is that lots of people repeat that, mm-hmm. that he has gone rogue, but he's not. Mm-hmm. Like, he just works for a different guy. Right, right. He is a part of the, like, and uh, Clotho and Lachesis are, like, pretty clear on this point, that it's like, no, like, we are we are of the same class of entity, and we have the same job, but that job is in service to different uh, uh, orders or functions or whatever. Yeah, I guess one could see that. So basically, they say that they're 
gosh, what are the... They say there are four forces or whatever <laughs> that exist. Uh-huh. I don't remember what the, the first two are, but there's the purpose and the random. Uh-huh. The random is one of the worst uh, pairings of words ever created. The random. Uh-huh. It's such... It's anti good mouth feel, right? right? Like I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know why. It but is the clunkiest mythology lore name for a faction or force or whatever, right? Do you remember what the other two words are? Um, no, because for whatever reason they just talk about the purpose and the random forever. It's like life and death. Or yes, something. like there are things that don't matter. Right, right. Well, it's like we're almost like to a political compass, except the other things <laughs> like don't. Yeah, as you say, they don't really matter. Yeah, it's like it is. It's like life and death, right? Because the like mm-hmm. life can serve the purpose, or it can serve the random, and like a death can serve the purpose, or it can serve the random, and you can sort of like you know any individual like has a life that could like vacillate between these various poles, except for the people who yeah. can't. <laughs> Yeah, but it, per, point being is that basically they say, like, look, there's an order of, uh, you know, a hierarchy to the universe mm-hmm. in terms of, like, capability. And uh, all things serve either the purpose or the random. These are things that in Stephen King mythology that are going to be associated with, uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, the white, the good, mm-hmm. God, big big G God, you know, all these words. That's something close to the purpose, and then the random is going to be associated with the Crimson King. Yes, the red. Um, the red, right? Uh, the white and the red, yeah. And uh, But so, Clotho uh, and Lachesis are like, uh, hey, we serve the purpose, and there are short timers, which are like human beings, they're mortals or whatever, and then like a little bit higher than them in the hierarchy of the universe. There's the long timers, which are these doctors. You know, they they have extremely long lifespans. They manage the living of the dead. And then there's like a higher level than them, and that's who they get their orders from. And then above that, there's another layer. And maybe maybe once you keep going higher, there's no difference between the purpose and the random, right? Like maybe it's all one thing. Who knows? They don't know anything about it. Ah! Ah! Any of that, any of that stuff. But um, they basically they serve the purpose, which is like correct death mm-hmm. you know uh death that is in time and proper and not uh you know uh in any way unthinkable mm-hmm. you know th- this is natural death that's what ralph calls it at one point and then atropos uh serves the random in that it is he is a little agent of chaos right he's running around he's uh causing accidental death literally he's, like, likened to a joker lives. in the deck that's right he's he is the jokey mm-hmm and uh, but I can see where people are coming from because they do say, and we think he's been corrupted by an even other dude, some other guy who is the Crimson King. Mm-hmm. And that's said pretty explicitly. So maybe you can say he goes rogue in the sense that he's like serving this other guy. But is this other guy really all that different from the random? I don't really know. Yeah. One way or the other. You know, I can't tell you at this point in time. Um, this will get folded into, as you can probably hear if you're familiar with it already. Uh, this is all being folded into the Dark Tower, what will eventually be called the Dark Tower mythology, what will be understood as the Dark Tower mythology, uh, precisely because they keep they say they're going up levels, mm-hmm. and the implication here is levels of the tower. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do remember in the early 2000s reading, you know, like infinitely long forum threads, like trying to tie all of this stuff together before books five, six, and seven came out that that 
canonizes some parts of this and, you know, dismisses other parts of it on purpose Mm -hmm. without getting too deep into that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Clotho and Lachesis try to explain to uh, Ralph kind of like the structure of reality. And they're like, well, imagine it's a skyscraper and there are different floors and you live on one floor and we live on another. And we have like... Uh, it turns out they caused the insomnia for Ralph and Lois, right? Like, yeah. uh, we we intentionally, like, thwarted your biorhythms, right, to pull you up a level because we need you to do something for us. Uh, namely, help us uh, do something about whatever uh, Atropos is up to. Uh, but uh, uh, when uh, they are explaining this to Ralph, he actually has a vision when you're talking about the skyscraper. He has a vision and it's like, oh, it's a big black like stone tower with like windows spiraling up it. And there's a field of roses around it and blah, 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 blah. And it is it is the dark tower. The uh, uh, I think by this point, at least maybe in, in Wastelands has Roland talked about the dark tower as being like the spoke of the universe or whatever. Right, right. Everything revolves around it. Right. I know at least we got Blaine talking about that. Blaine was also talking about like blah, 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 blah on this level of the tower. So uh, if you're reading Stephen King in order of publication live in the 90s, uh, this is when things start really clicking together for you. Yeah, and of course, throughout this, we get, uh, they explain these in these terms, right? Ka, Ka being mm -hmm. like fate, Ka's like a wheel. We get that too. Um and uh, Cotet, we get that too, even though like everybody and their brother gets to be part of a Cotet. Like every old per- <laughs> every person over 70 in this town is part of the Cotet, yeah. we are told, <laughs> basically, which is very funny. Um, but yeah, so so there's all of this stuff going on. And basically, uh, Ralph eventually meets the Crimson King, mm-hmm. like one on one, which is very funny. Big old, big old uh, 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 catfish, yes. which is also very funny. <laughs> Oh, it's wild. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, so that's the kind of big schematic of what is happening in the book. And in terms of like how it all shakes together, first 250 pages are him suffering from insomnia and just narrating what's going on in his life. Then they meet these uh, doctors. The doctors explain like what's going on and how all these things that you just talked about, Michael, how they all work. And then the back third is um, Ed Deepno and his like, anti-abortion terrorists Mm -hmm. attack a women's shelter Mm -hmm. as a distraction mechanism, essentially, for the eventual strike on the Civic Center with the the plane. Right. And uh, then that is thwarted by using magic. (laughs) Yes. Literally, Ralph gets teleported into the sky through the back of a Portageon. Yep. It gets teleported into a, an airplane and then dead sticks it into the ground with Ed Deepno in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get, I mean, I'll talk about it later, but you get a very good chapter about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, why, Michael, is all of this happening? This actually matters. There's a yet unnamed character who is introduced at, oh, I don't know, page 550 <laughs> or something, 600. Right. That all of this matters for. So This all matters. So uh, uh, when Clotho and Lachesis uh, first talk to Lois and Ralph about what they're doing, they're like, basically, uh, you know, Atropos is like up to some shenanigans. He's, uh, as you said, like there's there's a sense that the random is supposed to be working, right? The random mm-hmm. is is supposed to be there. He, uh, uh, 
uh, Atropos is supposed to be serving the random, uh, but the Crimson King uh, has reached down from his level of the tower and is uh, uh, working working the random to his own purposes, so to speak. And uh, the thing that uh, Clotho and Lachesis say at first is like, you cannot like stay away from Ed Deepno. Like, do not talk to him. What you need to do is stop Susan Day from speaking. It's too dangerous to to you know uh, deal with Deep No, uh, basically because they know that uh, in any way interfacing with him risks bringing the explicit detention of the Crimson King onto all of this. Uh, right. So uh, for a while, like Ralph and Lois are sort of spinning their wheels trying to figure out what to do, uh, and then that attack on the women's shelter that you mentioned happens, and so Ralph and Lois go there and then use their powers to uh, free the the survivors um, who are trapped in the basement. Uh, the guy who the 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 sort of like uh, uh, terrorist uh, who has actually earlier in the novel tried to kill Ralph. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's one of the many just things that happen. Right, he like comes up to Ralph in in the library and tries to stab him. Uh, but this guy, he goes uh, uh, just, you know, total like scorched earth is like trying to burn down the house. He's like killed some of the uh, women in there already. And Ralph and Lois like use their powers to teleport into the basement where everyone else is trapped and then they help them get out. And when they do this, there's a little boy and his mother who have been staying at the women's shelter. Uh, the little boy sees them and says, oh, look, mommy angels or whatever. And the boy has this distinctive scar on his face. And I think actually he's shown up at least once in the book earlier before. I think uh, Ralph runs into yeah. uh, him and the mom in the park as well. Um, so uh, that little boy, it turns out uh, he's the real important one here. And in fact, uh, this is something that Clotho and Lachesis explain. Uh, this all served the purpose, right? Them uh, telling, <laughs> basically telling Ralph and Lois something that made them spin their wheels uh, got them to this point where they could be there during the attack on the women's shelter uh, and help everyone uh, because the real, like the, the, the real purpose here is not to just stop the attack on the women's, or not the women's center, the civic center, right? Uh, that's actually sort of like beside the point. Uh, the real thing that needs to happen is this boy cannot die. And the Crimson King is trying to work everything out to kill this little boy whose name is Patrick Danville. Because in uh, some other far future moment, not really that far future, but at least when he's an adult. In 18 years yeah. explicitly. Yeah, 18 years old. Uh, when he is eight. No, no, no. Not 18 years oh. old. 18 years from now. Oh, okay. A- 18 years. The book is so explicit about when it's going to occur. <laughs> uh, yeah. So in uh, 18 years, Patrick Danville is going to help uh, two men. How? We don't know. But he's going to help them, and that is going to save something, help something. The universe. Right? Save yeah. the universe, right? Like, something, something's going to happen. He's going to be, he has a purpose to play, right? He has something he is going to do in the future. Uh, and at the end of the book, or sort of close to the end, uh, we get some pretty clear ideas of what this might entail, uh, because as he's sitting in the civic center with his mom, he's like uh, uh, coloring and then he like flips it over because he, he Patrick is a very good artist. That's the one thing we do mm-hmm. know. He's he's really good at drawing. 
uh, uh, uncannily good at drawing. I believe where he's like five years old, maybe four. I think he's four. four. Yeah, I think he's actually even four. Yeah. Right. So he's he's quite young. Uh, and the narration and in, in, in describing this specifically says that the work he produces uh, would have been pretty passable to a first year art student which yeah. is pretty nuts. Uh, but uh, he, on the back of his coloring book or whatever, his coloring page, uh, he sketches a black tower with a figure in red standing on it. And then at the foot of that tower, uh, a sort of cowboy type figure whom he explicitly names as Roland. He's a king too. Yep. Right. The The red figure is the red king and the thing at the bottom uh, that's that's Roland. He's a king too. Oh man, can you imagine reading this in 1994? Yeah, <laughs> how innervated you would be about this. You'd be like, oh yeah. <laughs> you mean uh, energized? No, I mean innervated, like uh, Walter Benjamin gets. Oh, <laughs> you okay. get like charged with the world spirit. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, like you'd be like, ah, yeah. Imagine reading this well, and not being someone who's ever read any of the Dark Tower books. I mean, that might be a chunk of the people. Yeah. Like, if you if you were like, I'm a Stephen King fan. It's 1992. I'm going to start reading books. I'm reading Gerald's Game. I'm reading Dolores Claiborne. I'm reading Insomnia. Mm-hmm. What the hell's all this? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. I mean, I I think when I read this uh, when I read this book, I already knew about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Like, I'd already read all the Dark, because uh, I'd read the Dark Towers 1 through 4 already before I read this. So mm-hmm. I was like, wow, wow. <laughs> and uh, in, let's see, let me count here. In about a year and a half, you'll get to hear, does this go anywhere? <laughs> yeah. Does it matter for the Dark Tower? Because the Dark Tower has, from the year of, of our reckoning, from 2023, it's it's complete. And weirdly enough, it completed in 2004, which is like we are about to hit the 20th anniversary. We will be reading The Dark Tower 7 in the year of its 20th anniversary. Oh, weird. Oh, that's Isn't that so weird? weird. I feel really weird now. If only we'd been able to do it this year, we'd be able to do it the 19th. Oh, year. damn. Damn. I know. Okay, let's re- reorganize the schedule. Forget publication order. <laughs> Well, oh, right, right, right. So we can do, I guess we'll do Dark Tower 4, 5, 6, 7, <laughs> all in a whack. And then we'll be able to catch the catch the schedule. Uh, but no. uh, but yeah, it's interesting stuff. No, it was very funny. Um, so my experience with reading this book was I it was one that I checked out from the library uh, after I'd read others that were more immediately interesting to me. Because uh, there was something about like the way that this book was summarized in the cover flap or whatever. That was just like, eh, whatever. Like, you know, it wasn't one that was drawing me in. It didn't have, like, the name recognition of a Cujo or something. Uh, so I, I got into kind of, like, my Stephen King mid-period or whatever. The things that didn't have any draws for me. And I tried I, I tried starting it. And it was so boring to me as, like, a 13-year-old or whatever. Can you believe it? I didn't... I was not interested in hearing about retiree Ralph Roberts's Lipton Cup of Soup. I mean, it's still boring. <laughs> like, uh, it, it, as I creep uh, further and further toward the age of Ralph Roberts, it's boring as shit. Like, that doesn't mean it's not good. I actually like the insomnia stuff, but you got to be honest, it is extremely boring to read. Mm-hmm. Like, if I didn't know there was more book happening, I definitely wouldn't finish it. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, as just a random reader. Right. And then, uh, uh, 
my problem was like, I just had no idea where it was going because that was really like what the I think that was the problem with like the 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 flap summary was just like I was reading. It, I'm like, where does this go? Like, what could this possibly be? So I ended up setting the book aside, and not doing anything with it because this I also, you know, checked out like uh, six books from the library at a time over the summers. So I set Insomnia aside and went to one of my others and uh, my mom picked it up and my mom started reading it. My mom read the whole thing. And then when she was done, she told me about it and she like summarized the whole thing. She was like, well, this is like she was like, this was a weird one. And my mom was not a Dark Tower reader, uh, but she, you know, I think had an OK time with the uh, uh the book like it got in her words right stupid this is her like way of <laughs> like her her opinion on Stephen King uh, at a certain point is always just like well there's interesting parts that she really likes and then there's parts that she doesn't like that she's just like why is this happening why is this here whatever um mm. so she like summarized the whole book for me and she was talking about the stuff that she thought was interesting which was like the insomnia and seeing colors and kind of like the slow unfolding of the world um and then she and as she was explaining it to me she started like recapping like the doctor's summaries of like how the world is structured and she has no idea she doesn't read the dark tower stuff so she's talking about this and i'm like listening to her and i'm like it sounds like my mom's talking about the dark tower like why is my mom talking about the dark tower from this book and that's actually what got you're like over there you're listening to you got you got a uh, you got one big headphone in you know it's like covering one ear you're listening to disturbed over uh-huh, there yeah you're listening to bodies uh-huh, yes and you're like why is my mom talking about the dark tower <laughs> Wearing a, a Godsmack uh, shirt. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, man. I forgot about Godsmack <laughs> entirely. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Uh, so that was actually when I buckled down and actually read the thing uh, because I was just starting to, like, come around on the Dark Tower, basically because I think by that point, maybe King had said that he was going to finish it and it would also be his retiring point. So I was like, well, I guess maybe I should read this because also, like, it was... It seems so clear that she was describing the Dark Tower without having any idea about the Dark Tower series that I was like, what the hell is this book doing? And so that's actually what brought me back into it. And yeah, I would say this book maybe played a role in me coming over on the Dark Tower precisely because it was uh, such an interesting move to have like this other book that seems to operate as keystone exposition for this other ongoing story that you have. Yeah, I mean, it's a big shared unit. We're, we're getting there, right. you know. Do you think this is, is this Lovecraft? <sighs> Maybe. Like, is that what is that what King, because we've always had the passive version of this, right? Which is shared locations, Castle Rock, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But we have not had a, we've, we've had like a shared material universe. But other than like the white, right? Or like chaos and order, you know, these big kind of ideas. We have not had like a, shared you know i i metaphysics for lack of a better word right we have not had like a shared magical system Mm -hmm. right that unifies all of reality right this is the opening salvo in the idea that there are both narrative threads that are shared throughout all these books not just like a shared material history but narrative pieces of of different worlds right there are other worlds than these literally the doctors say Mm -hmm. You know, that when they when uh, they when they do the thing that kills people, right, they go on to other worlds than these, Mm -hmm. you know, that's or maybe Ralph fills that in like in his head. It's uh, that's actually one of the neat parts where um, I think they say two things and like the way that it when they first meet the doctors, this 
oddly enough, kind of falls out of the way that they're written, uh, is that there the doctors will say things that get shown on the page as like two phrases that are like columned, like side by side, as if they're being said simultaneously. And the idea is that the doctors are speaking from a context and a level of reality that presents a phrase that might make no sense. And so it comes attached with a phrase that is like simpler, but maybe makes more sense. And so I don't remember what it gets paired with, but uh, Other Worlds Than These is the one that's presented as a uh, uh, like, here's a weird thing that the doctor is saying. And I think like the uh, right. the more accessible version is like beyond or something. Got it. Got it. Uh, yeah. So like. The shared kind of magical reality, right? Right. That 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 behind the curtain of reality is in in these disparate Stephen King novels a shared thing. We've already seen that a little bit with the uh, the use of the eclipse mm-hmm. in Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's game, right? That like, oh, there's a reality behind the reality. I think we're about to read Rose Matter. Yep. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Is that our next book? Mm-hmm. That's also going to play with that. You know, this kind of shared magical thing. You know, this fantasy behind the world. And of course, uh, we've already had the talisman, right? Mm-hmm. Which like plays directly in that, and ultimately will eventually tie into some of this stuff um, way down the line, mm-hmm. right? A-, a lot of these earlier books are going to get folded back in um, by-, by various various modes. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I guess like we've had the Lovecraftiana. Maine is its own unique place. Dairy exists. Castle Rock exists. All that kind of stuff, uh-huh. right? Um, but, but we haven't had this, like, I mean, I guess it was psychic shit before, right? Like TK and all that, that was the shared, it was a science fiction shared universe. Uh And now there's some other thing. Yeah. I don't know if it's Lovecraft because Lovecraft is so much more about like the location where things just kind of like the place where weird things happen. Uh, for all of the kind of ways that I think Lovecraft's uh, mythos has has been like built out and like basically systematized, Lovecraft himself seemed very uninterested in doing that. Um, right, yeah. like look, but but also like Stephen King himself specifically is like Lovecraftiana influence, mm-hmm. not necessarily Lovecraft himself. So that's what I'm saying, right. right? That part of it, but even that part of it, right? Of like the August Derleth editions and all those things, mm-hmm. right? That's still not really a shared, like, unified metaphysics, right? right? That's, like, still mostly location Right. Well... Even beyond Lovecraft himself. Well, like, if I didn't... Uh, actually, what I would love to know is, um, did Joe or Owen read a lot of comic books, and did they talk with their dad about it? Well, they talked about Transformers. Right. We know from Joe Hill's response to my tweet uh-huh. that, that Transformers was huge. Yeah. Um, so perhaps, uh, you know, the Transformers and G.I. Joe <laughs> talking to one another. But yeah, he had to read. They had to read a lot of comic right. books. Steve had to read a lot right. of comic books. Right. right. Well, because that's what this ends up feeling like is like a, right. a, a kind of crisis on Infinite Earths type thing with the doctors standing in as like monitors or whatever. Um, because mm. and, and even the ways that uh, like basically Ralph and Lois become superheroes. Like they actually yeah. have like, you know, their their magic like uh uh aura sensing powers that allow them to uh do battle on like the psychic plane with the various doctors, which means that we get scenes in this book where uh <laughs> picture this, dear listener, right? It's deeply embarrassing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like the second hand embarrassment I get from just reading it is intense. Two two uh, uh septuagenarian protagonists doing karate chops in the air that like fire off energy blasts that are like hitting these like short little men in coats 
uh, yeah, they're all four feet tall with like big ovuloid heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like sometimes it's not even that. If it were all karate chops, that would be embarrassing, but would be acceptable. Sometimes like Ralph does like an uh 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 like finger wiggle, and that will like shoot a laser blast. Mm-hmm. Like the 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 economy of movement is not epic or cool. It makes Doctor Strange look cool by comparison. <laughs> And that is also deeply embarrassing to look at. <sighs> so yes. Uh, anyway, that's yeah. that's sort of my thought is that it it feels um it feels very comic booky the way that it starts coming together, and I don't know if that's because uh, Steve has been talking about comic books with like his kids and sort of like picking up some of these ideas, or maybe even you know reading them himself, uh, or if uh, because of the nature of uh, 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 commodified stories or whatever, once you start building out. Uh, a shared universe in kind of the marketplace, it starts looking a lot like a comics continuity. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I guess the other side of it. Well, uh, we know that that um, Doctor Doom is going to matter. Oh, that's true. On. So you know, he's at least aware of Doctor Doom, uh-huh. <laughs> which is very funny. But the, and I'm sure we'll be able to read some interviews about that later on. I mean, I guess the other thing to think about it is that this is we have talked extensively throughout the '80s of like the brand name of Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And in the 90s, we might start seeing the franchise of Stephen King. Mm, And that mm -hmm. will be a thing to really talk about probably when we get to the early 2000s when the last three Dark Tower books come out. Um, I just don't know if there's a better time to talk. Maybe Dark Tower 4. I don't know. I'll figure out when to do it. But right, I've written a lot about franchises at this point. I've I've done a lot of research into that. And, uh, you know, De Laurentiis and and, um, Laurel Entertainment, right, a couple of these different companies use Stephen King as like the log line to then do a lot of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But in the early 90s and throughout the 90s, that's when we're seeing the TV movies start coming out, right? It and then um, The Stand and then The Shining. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all throughout this period that we're about to run into. And for me, that starts looking... I mean, that's just a transformation in Stephen King. Stephen King is not just like the name that gets the thing sold... It is the under-driving current. It's the infrastructure that makes all this stuff go together. And once you have some infrastructure that makes it all go together, then when you start making it talk to itself, right, you start creating these interconnections that are deep within it, I think that does start driving a different kind of monetary engine. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's where, where that that is in the works of Star Wars at this moment, too, in the early 90s. Right, yeah. Right? We're about to see that get cashed out in a big way. Um, and then we're going to enter into the franchise era, mm-hmm. like straight up. Yeah. And so I, I think that's part of what's going on too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think for 95% of it's comic books are in the background of it, right? Like that's, that's who proves you can do mm-hmm. it. Um, and importantly too, crisis on infinite earth is DC trying to reset itself in the mid eighties, trying to reset itself in order to make it more like Marvel, which is more deeply interconnected, more coherent, more day-to-day, more real-world, where all these kind of pieces all fit together, kind of locking key, in a way that DC Comics did not do beforehand. Right. So um, this is another, you know, Steve in the 90s is making things fit together, kind of locking key, and rewarding you for finding what we would now call the Easter egg. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh, that's Roland. Right. Um, you know, ooh, that painting in Rose Matter goes to blah, blah, blah. Right, 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 right. Ooh, desperation. 
Tekken Ta. Right. So that, all that stuff. So yeah, that's interesting. This is happening then as he is like rebooting the King brand to focus in on kind of this Dark Tower thing, which seems an extremely pointed decision for, you know, whatever reason he may have. Uh, but like that, is, this is a really interesting, uh, I guess, tactic to take, especially because, uh, maybe moving on to something else that I have here in the, the show doc, uh, this book is also demonstrating King as being, I would say, very aware of his own writerly process and writing and, mm-hmm. and maybe his own legacy even and writing those things into the story in odd ways. Before we jump to that, let yeah. me like can I say one thing really quickly? Sure thing. Uh, or it's like more of a question actually. Did John Grisham's novels all tie into one another? I don't know. I never. I didn't read enough John Grisham to know. Me neither, and I I wonder about that too because we've talked about that the kind of explosion of Grisham onto the scene mm-hmm. in the late eighties and how like King is friends with Grisham and also is clearly responding to some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder about that too. Hmm. You know, is is this a if if, if is there a lawyer verse? Yeah, hold on. That I'm, we don't I'm know Google about this on air. John Grisham shared universe. The Grisham yes. Verse. Uh, Hulu scraps plans to develop John Grisham shared universe uh, with Rogue Lawyer and Rainmaker. Um, shared universe. Da, da, da. So I wonder. I wonder if so. Uh, shared universe. Imagining a proper. Yeah, it's all here. about this Hulu show. Well, I wonder if that means that they are connected as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's unclear if these. If it's just these two books, because it's the, these particular two books that keep coming up as part of the show project that fell through. But maybe that does suggest that all of his books are kind of like lightly connected. Yeah, I don't know. Someone someone let us yeah. know. It's just, this, is a, this is a gap for us that might really uh, enliven. And the reason we're kind of having this conversation here is that Insomnia starts a lot of this up. And again, we're going to spend the next 10 episodes or so talking about this because it's going to come up very consistently. Right. So that's all to say. Okay. But you're talking about Stephen King and reflecting on his writing process and reflecting on his legacy. What do you mean by that? Michael? Uh, so one thing to say is like kind of in a big picture sense, uh, this book seems like in many ways, a purposeful inversion of it. Uh, in that uh, we have returned to dairy uh, Derry has been mentioned a couple times since it, but we uh, we, we return to Derry, uh, and then very specifically, we are now in a story not about children during the golden days of summer, and then like uh, how that feeds into the trials and tribulations of adulthood. Uh, we are now at the end of life, right? We were we were talking about people in their seventies, retirees, people who are very much uh, facing down the specter of like everyday death, rather than almost like mythological like childhood and like middle age confronting your demons kind of death. Uh, so there there's something about that uh, to me that just feels like very conscious, right? A conscious choice. Like I'm going to revisit this place that is so iconically a setting of this type of story, and I'm going to round out like the next stage of human development, essentially. Um, it's also like set uh, very specifically in the fall, whereas uh, it is all about the summer. So we get again that kind of like contrast uh, between kind of like vivacity in life and then kind of the declining years. Um, uh, so we've got that, uh, and then, uh, sort of the subject matter, 
uh, about aging, being retired, like watching your your spouse die or your friends die, uh, as well as kind of all of the abortion content, uh, seems like a clear attempt from King to mark this as a story about adults and about adult concerns. Uh, whereas we talked mm-hmm. about, I can't, can't remember how many uh, episodes ago it was now, right? Where he comes out of it, like it is it, it was intended to be him closing the book on writing novels about children. Um, yeah, that's what he said. Right. I don't want to write about kids anymore. Right. He, and then he went on to write several novels about Right. It. This feels like another <laughs> attempt at that, precisely by writing back against it in its legacy, by having the story that is like, uh, you know, no one, we, we talked about in the It episode that you, it basically reads like a young adult novel for large chunks of it. Um, yeah. And and yeah, uh, to, to be clear too, I think, I think Steve has remained consistent with that intent. Mm-hmm. If only because there have been, I think needful things has it, but other than that, there have been no children perspectives. Mm-hmm. Like we're not writing from the POV of a kid right. and of a kid's development. But lots of these books have had kids in them, Mm -hmm. and they have had kids in them in order to talk about adults either preying upon them, which is like a very real thing in lots of these, and and sometimes very horrifyingly, honestly. You know, we've we've talked about that, that Steve uh, abandons children's perspectives and then, like, turns the volume up to 11 on, like, violence against children in many different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But, you know, about adults' perspectives on children. And this whole... This whole novel is wrapped around that. I mean, it really is, as you were saying, is about someone in their twilight years thinking about what is their obligation to children. Right. Explicitly. Right. Notably, a Ralph and uh, Carolyn didn't have kids, and there's not a lot made out of that, but I thought it was really interesting. They could yeah. not, is what is. Uh, they tried and co- it couldn't make it yeah. work. Um, and that is that is brought into the discussion, too. But yeah, there we, we didn't really talk about it. What, uh, Natalie is Helen Deep Nose. Yeah daughter mm-hmm. we'll talk about the end of the book in a bit but you know she's the a big catch point and of course uh patrick danville mm-hmm. too right so uh uh just in, in in a general way uh it feels like king is front loading this or really trying to load this story with content and concerns that are like adult concerns right things that adults would care mm-hmm. about um and in like a general sense uh and then we have like a tropos uh, who, when we finally confront him, there's like a whole like little descent into his lair, which is subterranean. It's underneath dairy, but it's underneath like a it's like a, a little Keebler elf tree, right? Um, there's like a little hole at the base of a tree, and Ralph and Lois like clamber down there, and there's like a whole uh, a little warren where Atropos has been stashing all of his trophies for the centuries that he's been uh, killing people. It's it's kind of weird and fuzzy uh, in Derry, perhaps, but also it's suggested that he can range beyond Derry at certain points in his life. But there's like a, a sort of throwaway line where uh, Ralph gets like a blast of like plot precognition where he's like, they they can't touch us when we're not in Derry. That matters because at one point someone that he's worried about is not in Derry so he can be like, OK, they're safe anyway. uh when this happens, it's obviously sort of evocative of the descent beneath Derry into the sewers to uh, uh, encounter it. Uh, and uh, during this sequence, uh, Atropos is 
very, very constantly described as like a little troll. And of course, like we called him Rumpelstiltskin earlier, right? He's much more fairy tale uh, in that way, even though he's like in a doctor's smock and all that stuff. Uh, but anyway, the 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 point being, um, this troll quality, uh, that was the one of the initial images that does spark it, was King walking over a bridge and thinking about the story of three billy goats gruff and the troll underneath the bridge and from there unfolds like Pennywise and it and all of that stuff stuff so there's like a rerun at that idea or kind of a, an ex invocation of the same concept right here is Derry. it is a town where bad things happen and that's a thing that's made very clear right people constantly remembering the storm but they also remember like the the fire at the black spot that's talked about extensively in it um so uh it's like, what if you went one level deeper than Pennywise, right? Like, what is the Pennywise beneath Pennywise? It is this uh, weird force of monstrosity and terror that has, in fact, persisted beyond 1985. Uh, and uh, now Ralph is going to confront that. So um, there's a, a real sense there of... Uh, being in dialogue with it also like when we get to the end when Ralph is uh, seeing the Crimson King uh, he it, it, this is actually very ambiguous and strange the Crimson King is very much seen as male and at the same time is enmeshed with this memory very you know it like uh, the Crimson King uh, takes on kind of memories from Ralph's past and like uses them as disguises first he appears as Ralph's mother uh, and then appears as this giant monstrous catfish which is related like it calls back to a memory that Ralph has from his childhood where he was fishing with his brother in the barrens and he got they caught a catfish and then the catfish bit him and it was like a moment of like sheer terror and they killed the catfish and it turned out it was pregnant and they saw like they they smashed it and like the eggs came out uh and so mm -hmm. uh very Stevie yes, King. Yes, right. And so, like, the uh, Crimson King, when he first shows up, he shows up as Ralph's mother, and uh, in this form, uh, he's like, just give up. Like, you, 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 you can't do anything. Like, mind your mother. Like, do what I say. Like, y y whatever. Um, and then as he's talking with her... <laughs> The uh, the the Crimson King also says, you know, shape changing has a long history here. In yes. <laughs> Crimson King's funny. Uh, and uh, uh, as he's talking, he morphs into like this giant like catfish combination mother. That is also like the catfish. Uh, uh, well, his mother is like knitting something right. This this like striking crimson sh uh, like blanket or something on her lap. And then once the catfish transformation sets in, the uh, blanket becomes like a, a, a bed of fish eggs of roe and uh, that is, of course, like sort of bound up in or seems to evoke recall uh, getting to the bottom of uh, dairy in it and finding out that it is female and pregnant and we got to smash all these spider eggs. Uh, so, of course, uh, my memories of a lot of uh, forum conversations or rather listserv conversations are about this point of like, well, is is the Crimson King it or is it the Crimson King? Are they like? Uh, uh, emanations of one another like what's going on here because all of these points seem so like it would be hard to believe that even with Stephen King's like professions toward not remembering things that this would be an accident that we would get to the end of this other book set in Derry and have 
this confrontation with this final evil that is weirdly gender ambiguous and also like orbiting this question of like pregnancy. And that, of course, takes on some other like freighted, uh, maybe symbolic weight here in this novel uh, that is so concerned with like abortion and children. Right. Like there, there's like um, maybe a sense of uh, good, good baby future and then like evil, horrible, inhuman egg baby future. The two types of future. Mm hmm. <laughs> yep well uh we'll see we'll see if these two things are related it is interesting that the crimson king shows up here like um kind of fully embodied mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. like as a, as a as a creature and then uh kind of goes away for a very long time yes uh which i don't we'll we'll talk about that over the next couple years but uh the, he's uh, the hot thing here He's what? He's hot. That's the thing. He's a cool red guy. He's totally red. Right. Well, it's uh, uh, he's beautiful. Right. It's like when Ralph can kind of like glimpse the the sort of like yeah. more human form behind all of these disguises. It's described. He, he is actually uh, uh, visually compared to Christ. Like, what if Jesus was all red? Yeah. Uh. Well, also his hair is kind of like uh, you know, wild and stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, I kind of and he is described as his flesh is literally the color red. Yes. And so he kind of looks like the heat miser <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> a little bit, I think, or, or like a cartoon Satan, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, uh, like, uh, what do you call it? Like, uh, from the Powerpuff Girls? Yes. Uh, him. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that going on. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, uh, the other thing that you didn't say, but what also shows up here is when they talk about, uh, moving up in the tower and things like that, the dead lights show up there too. Oh, mm -hmm. And so there's a little bit of question. No turtle, just mm -hmm. a catfish. No. So yeah, um, all these things are kind of resonant and what, which is really interesting to me, like what I said all the way back around UFOlogy, right? UFO, UFOlogy, however yeah. you say it, the, the fascination with aliens, particularly in the nineties, uh, in conspiracy theories in the nineties is that basically Stephen King's doing an in run around science fiction concepts to be like, what if the little, you know, what if the greys are actually magical beings from another plane of existence? Mm -hmm. What if they are not uh, actual aliens, which is a new age kind of thing, right? Like uh, new agers, as, as we did one time in the discord, you and I did a uh, yes. docu <laughs> documentary, uh, like live watch around the documentary orbs. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what some people say, right? Some people say that that all of these alien creatures, and not some people, but New Agers in particular, say that these uh, extraterrestrials that we perceive to see and all these kind of things are actually just people in different universes or different worlds that are parallel or higher planes than ours, and we get access to them for brief moments of time if we're tuned in. So, like, in some ways, Stephen King's just, like, kind of quoting gospel for some people here. Right. Um, uh, which is very Kingian, I think, too. Yeah. Uh, so... Well, so that that's that's maybe the the easier part of talking about how this is King being in dialogue with himself. The weirder part uh, that maybe not everyone has to follow along with me on, because this is this is the other thing about this novel is that uh, this is maybe where some like real Michael Lutz shit starts kicking in vis-a-vis -vis, like the overall project of the Dark Tower. Uh, 
because as I already said, the, the novel is not particularly good, but I think is really interesting. And if you go listen to our show, Homestuck Made This World, you will hear me uh, talking at length about all of the things that I can do with kind of a... Uh, uh, weirdly put together and maybe kind of roughly fashioned objects in the ways that I like to make those things speak. Um, but uh, one thing that is super fascinating to me about this book is that we already know, I read this at the beginning, that King wrote this in like, you know, he wrote the first draft of it uh, in 1990 or thereabouts, uh, doesn't like it, doesn't feel like it fits together, and is continuing to sort of work on it until it comes out in this particular form. Um, and then in 2009, he does a kind of retrospective with Time Magazine uh, where he, they just ask him about his 10, uh, longest novels. You can find this. It's if you search for it, it's Stephen King on his 10 longest novels by, uh, Gilbert Cruz. Uh, and when talking about insomnia, uh, King says, uh, well, first of all, actually, here's one of the things he says is that uh, he talks about the promotional tour he did for this book. Uh, he did a cross-country trip on a motorcycle, and he would go to independent bookstores and do his readings and his signings, and that was his attempt to uh, boost business uh, for local stores uh, because in the early 90s, chains like uh, Barnes & Noble were coming in and really undercutting the independent bookstore scene. And so in this interview, he talks about how uh, in this you know, circa 2009 interview, he's like, yeah, now the chains are being undercut by like Amazon. So what the hell? Uh, anyway, uh, Time says, you once wrote about plotted novels versus unplotted novels, and you wrote that insomnia was unplotted and that in retrospect, you found the results, quote, particularly disappointing. Now, I don't know where he says this uh, exactly. They're, they're referring back to something. But then King responds, when you plot a novel, particularly when you try to make a novel work to fit a foregone conclusion, you know how a book is going to end. And if you sense that a book wants to go in a different direction, you steer it back to that predetermined course at your peril. It's better to let the book be the boss. I remember the, the sensation of saying, uh, while writing Insomnia, quote, I'm twisting this for my own purposes. It was a book that had one bad guy that really wanted to uh, go off the reservation, and I wouldn't let him. Uh, I made him do what I wanted, and as a result, it was tough for me to believe it. And if I can't believe some of the things, I can't expect readers to believe them because, let's face it, they're pretty out there anyway. Now, what I think is interesting about this, there's a couple things. One of the things is, like, I don't know actually which villain he's referring to there. I don't know if he means Ed, if he means uh, Atropos, or if he means, like, the Crimson King. Because all three of these characters are, like, the villains, and all three of them are extremely odd in their own way. Um, but uh, more on what I was saying earlier, uh, I think that this book... Uh, insomnia is interesting because of the way that uh, the way that Clotho and Lachesis talk about the purpose and the random seems like King uh, writing his own authorial process into the fiction where he's talked about this multiple times. We've talked about it multiple times. He doesn't outline. He kind of has an idea, right? He has some images in his head and he has some uh, notions about where the story might go. But once he sits down to write, uh, it's kind of anyone's game and things are going to balloon and shrink and fall out. Uh, he, he will be surprised uh, at his own kind of emergence, right? When it turns out that, for instance, Mike Hanlon is black and he only knows this when someone uh, points it out in the story. Uh, so King has this 
interesting relationship with uh, uh, purposefulness and randomness in his own writing and uh, seems to want to embrace kind of the randomness, right? He has this sense of, uh, uh, you've called it before, Cameron, like the numinous, right? This idea that the story ultimately is kind of like speaking through you or something and you have to kind of follow where it leads. And that's what he's saying in that uh, time interview. Uh, And he talks about he had an ending in mind. He was like, turning the novel toward an ending. And that is, in fact, the situation that we get from Clotho and Lachesis, where they're like, listen, here's what this comes down to. There is a kid in that civic center who needs to be saved because in 18 years he is going to do something. And it feels very much like this tension between purposefulness and randomness is uh, King like staging as like plot drama, uh, his own writerly process and kind of these He's doing something out of character, right? He wants this book to end, it seems, with something important that is going to plug into the Dark Tower. Uh, and that's out of character for him, out of out of uh, step with his normal way of writing. And this results in, I mean, you know, the this ends up being kind of a book of deus ex machinas where... Uh, like Ralph has to teleport through the back of a, a, a porta john in order to get into the plane, uh, just so like the plane can be crashed in the way that it was going to be crashed, but without the bomb going off or whatever. Um, and he says that, in his opinion, maybe this ends up making it uh, feel not terribly good. But for me, as someone who is interested in the ways that like authors, I think conceptualize their own processes, it makes it fascinating for me. Yeah, I mean, it it, it is such a uh, at some point, Steve, uh, it's hard, we're poisoned by knowledge, right? Right. It, at some point, Steve will begin to note that, like, in text, that the way that stories are written impacts the world, mm-hmm. right? You know, he starts to collapse those things. And, and we saw that in an interview. You shared a video interview uh, with me from him from 1995, so a little bit uh, later than this. But he's legitimately in that interview talking about, like, Jung and uh, kind of universal archetypes. He's not using that word, but uh, he he is talking. He basically the the it's the thing that happens quite often. In Stephen King interviews. Someone prompts him like, "Ah, oh, were you all messed up as a kid?" And he says, "Look, I think Freud Freudianism's Freudianism is bullshit." <laughs> you know, is what he says. Mm-hmm. He says, "I think it's Jung, you know, who has it right," which is like, uh, and and then he gives us like a very uh, thin version of Jung, right, which is just like. They're universal structures, and then they emerge, and they get tapped into you mm-hmm. know, these things, which is more of Steve's kind of thing. And then he says there that, like, um, all these, like, uh, werewolves and vampires are just, like, tapping into real fears, which is very funny. We were talking about before the show, but that's exactly what he tells us is, like, wrong mm-hmm. about the way that people read horror in and dance macabre. So we are going to see a sea change, at least in his perception of the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about that maybe when we get to the next episode, which is actually in 95, but, uh, but so that to me is, is maybe, um, something that's important to think about is if, if he's thinking his own process, he's also clearly reading things that are thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Like what are the ways that, uh, fiction taps into a broader social, um, concern and and the way that he used to do that the way that he thought about that in dance macabre is like there are 
kind of political threads or conceptual threads within society and horror like pokes at some of those right and now it seems like by the time we get to the 90s in interviews he's actually aligning those with like bigger theories of narrative and mm-hmm. theories of psychology which is which is an interesting maneuver um and he's just going to keep going down that road over the next little while, while also writing his own version of that, which is like this magical system behind the whole world, mm-hmm. um, which has rules and regulations that fans are encouraged to think through and try to understand. Yeah. Uh, and just like a little more on that that I forgot to cover, just because it is kind of interesting. Uh, one of the so when Lois and Ralph are down in uh, Atropos's little den and they're finding all of his uh, souvenirs. Uh, we get some very kingy moments where it's like they found they find like, you know, a, the 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 giant bicycle wheel from like a penny farthing or whatever. <laughs> right. Just all. Yeah, this, all it's this all stuff. it stuff. Right. It's just all Pennywise. Yeah. Uh, uh, and like we because they're getting more and more psychic. Right. Like when they touch them or it's actually unclear. It's, it is the narrative telling us this stuff or are they kind of getting this information from being close to these objects, whatever. Uh, but one of the things that they find is a sneaker from a little boy named Gage Creed who was run down on the highway. Uh, and that, of course, is the uh, big kind of pivotal moment in Pet Cemetery, And it's like an explicit straight up connection that like, hey, Atropos like cut Gage's uh, uh, little balloon string way back in, in that other book from last decade uh, at this mm-hmm. point, like, you know, 10 years ago, uh, straight up. Um and this is interesting in this in the same way that I talked about, like Atropos is kind of like the thing beneath Pennywise, right? What if you took like uh, the function that Pennywise serves in a story, distilled that down to kind of like a narrative conceit or a kind of like narrative force, right? Here are the things, like here are the pieces, here are like the the Legos that you need to build your own Stephen King story. Um, and then what if you built a fictional setting out of those Lego pieces? Uh, Atropos yeah. becomes this force of like sudden surprising uh, and in many cases like cruel and uh, uh, unhappy death. Uh, and we can align this, for instance, with um, at, with King as a writer, uh, the famous story of hitting the roadblock uh, in the stand where he doesn't you know, at the midpoint of that book, he doesn't know what to do. Everyone's too happy. And so what he does is he blows up half of the good guys and that like a lot like that frees up the blockage and allows him to get to the end of the story. Right. So this kind of like writerly toolkit of um, what's going on. Things aren't quite catching. I need to get this story moving. Oh, I can kill someone. Right. Someone dies and that changes the direction of the plot or it gets us going towards something or, you know, something big and terrible happens and that can get us uh, uh, it can get the engine started again. Uh, Right. Right. So there is like, I think, a real like uh, reflection on the process. And like uh, uh, King is thinking like, you know, when I introduce death into my story, when I am killing these characters, um, am I like. What am I doing uh, and how am I doing it? Uh, The other thing that I have in my notes here that is like even more of a stretch probably is uh, when we get up into the uh, confrontation with Ralph and the Crimson King, all that stuff I said about like Ralph's mother and the memory of the catfish. No anticipation of any of that in, in the entire novel, in this huge novel, Ralph maybe thinks about his mother one or two times in like passing, but she's never, it's not like he's focused on his mother constantly remembering her. And then, ah, the Crimson King takes that form. No, Ralph 
sees his mother floating in midair in like a rocking chair. And then we get like all the exposition of uh, Ralph and his mother and his memories of her. And then the uh, the catfish memory also comes up out of nowhere here. We've never had any hint of that. The closest we get is that at one point he sees a, a little uh, oral bug, right, from a higher level of reality gets smushed and he thinks the eggs might pop out of it. Um, but there's also, for you know, again, tending to read things the way that I read them, uh, with the Crimson King suddenly appearing here and like bringing these things into focus for the reader, uh, there's something here where King is playing with the power of authorial fiat where you can just like when you're writing, you can do this like it's generally not considered to be like good writing. But the whole thing about writing is that you learn the rules and then you start breaking the rules to uh, other effects. And so what happens when you have like, how do you communicate that the Crimson King is serious business? Uh, he can manufacture or rather his presence in the narrative can help the author give the author time to manufacture like entire plot threads that haven't been present here before, right? This guy is so powerful, so otherworldly, that he is bringing into focus information that was a Relevant. He is like pulling into the irrelevant parts of Ralph Roberts's past and like building something new out of it. And I think that's really interesting. That is the kindest possible read <laughs> on what is happening in this book. Yeah. <laughs> As the, yeah. I just think it's uh, I, it's not novel shaped. I mean, I think in some ways, uh, you know, that's this is this is the kind of scene that King is talking about. Right. Like in a properly shaped novel and big quotations around properly shaped novel here. Right. But like we would learn a little bit about his brother who doesn't show up. We learn that his brother is dead in this section mm -hmm. who only died like five years before. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if we knew he had a brother. Yeah. I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> uh, and so like, you know, I, I think that the, the kind of version is what you just read. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is like, it warps reality so much that it brings things that don't matter into focus. Uh, or fears that are latent, right? Which is kind of what King's talking about in that interview we, that we talked about. The unkind read is that this is a very cool scene that Stephen King wanted to put in the book because it's a really great idea, and you had to manufacture all kinds of stuff, and you had to recycle a bunch of stuff from other Stephen King novels to get there, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like the idyllic childhood trauma, um, uh, which is very common. And remember, Steve did see that kid get hit by a train, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that might matter here. So I don't know. I don't know one way or the other. I think that's a compelling read mm -hmm. of that scene. Um, but it is one that assumes Steve knows what he's doing, what he's doing. Right. Well, I mean, uh, that's also like just, know to, you know, that's my M.O., right? As I take the rough edges of a thing and I'm like, hey, what if this was the point? <laughs> Yeah. Right. Well, you want to talk uh, about the other big lingering issue here, which is that this is a book about abortion. Yeah. Oh, so this is a book about abortion. And uh, uh, I think the way you put it when we were talking the other day was like, this is a very political novel that is doing everything in its power to pass itself off as not political. Yeah, it, it really is like a. Uh, uh, like a sleight of hand trick, like the world's worst sleight of hand trick where you're like. I'm going to, you know, like over here, I've, I've got the, the, you know, my assistant who I'm sawing in half. <laughs> look over here. Look at my fingers. Look at my fingers. And like, you just watch the person get out of the thing and like put a dummy in very slowly. And you're like, look over here. Look over here. Ooh, look at the birdie. And like, <laughs> so they're, you know, they've got the, the dummy they're putting in. It's like falling apart. And they're like trying to get it in both sides. And you're like, look, 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 look. Like it's that level of, uh oh, what are we doing here, Steve? Mm hmm. Uh, because yeah, it, it is, uh, a novel that, you know, we, we've talked extensively about the, it's just such an impactful thing in 
the knowledge of Stephen King, you know, his college experience with the Black Panthers, where he decided he had to stand up and give them what for and tell them that their whole worldview was wrong, right? Um, And that they, like, fundamentally mistaken the shape of the universe, which is, like, you can feel whatever way you want to about, like, what is actually happening in that moment, but there is something noticeable about uh, going to that event and then deciding that you need to be the 19-year-old that explains this to everyone, right? Like, that's a... That's a shape of rhetoric that is important to pay attention to. And that kind of is what's happening with the question of abortion here, which is like uh, Steve, uh, like creating a narrative universe, creating actually a magical and metaphysical universe in which uh, the narrative stands up and says everyone on every side of this issue who deviates from uh the norm on it is wrong. Uh-huh. And the norm of abortion as it is presented by the narrative. I don't think Stephen King actually himself believes this. I'm not quite sure, but I don't get a sense of that, but the narrative presents this. Abortion is necessary. Right? It is a social benefit. Mm-hmm. And so then therefore it is necessary. However, making a big deal out of it in the sense of promoting it or being a terrorist about it. Those are both equally bad. Mm-hmm. Because he explicitly says this kind of uh, Gloria Steinem figure uh, is said to be an agent of the random. Mm-hmm. The, the, the person who comes to town to stir up shit and do some, some uh, you know, fundraising for the women's clinic, right, that pro- provides abortions, mm-hmm. uh, that it, like, that very act is an act of chaos. Yes. And that doesn't mean you're evil. Mm-hmm. The random's not evil. It's actually necessary. It provides this counterpoint to the to the purpose or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But that, but uh, you know, that is these other characters too. The like the person who goes in uh, with the banana clipped assault rifle, you know, what I mean? mm-hmm. which is explicitly what it, what it's called, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to go and shoot up the uh, you know uh, shelter, that is also an agent of the random. I don't think Steve is in any universe saying that these people are actually equivalent to one another. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is his intention. I don't think the narrative says that. But he has created a magical universe in which they are they're on the same team. Mhm. And that's a that's a, like we that's a problem, right? Like that's an error in thinking. Yep. Uh, uh and I don't it's they're like we're going to go a thousand different other like this just keeps getting worse yeah. beyond what I'm saying here. No, so like the the thing that really like stood out to me on this uh, point was um the the supporting character the cop Ladecker I think his name is yep um, yes also uh, just as a sidebar actually uh another thing I think maybe this has been latent and maybe I've pointed it out in some other ways but uh since since sobriety King has become a real cop lover um. Yeah, right. they are a. They have always been a cornerstone of the work, mm-hmm. right? Like they're always in here, right? Um, I think every book, not every book, but like a big chunk of the books have had some authority figures in the police universe. Some of which are good, some of which are bad. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're all in there. But yeah, I mean, it, it also perhaps is we we've got a lot of uh we've got a lot of crime novels. Yeah, you know what I mean. Right, and like Laydecker is like the crime novel inside of. Um, insomnia Stephen King has replaced his necessity of explaining everything in a science fiction universe he has wholly 
uh, retained that impulse and just put it into crime shit. Yes. In the in these other novels, right? It's like, no science fiction things to worry about. Mm-hmm. However, a cop will show up and walk you point by point through every crime that occurs. Right. Like, this is this is the true, like, magic here is that, like, Steve has become a cop lover, not necessarily because he's, like, so in love with authority, but because no. cops are characters who are just in a position to know a lot of shit and complain about it. And explain it. Right. Because this is yeah. this is what Leidecker does. Like, Leidecker explains the friggin' like zoning laws in dairy to us. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, because so the 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 sort of position on Leidecker, right, is that he's kind of like uh basically a good guy. He's like really overworked, and he he is uh he thinks the anti-abortion people are nuts. Uh, but he also, he like resents Susan Day coming to town and he resents a woman care for like petitioning to get her there because it makes his job harder. They're just stirring the pot. Uh, and he like walks through that, uh, this whole thing got started because the, I think it starts out as the friends of life is the name of the anti-abortion group. Uh, they are like petitioning or like putting forth some sort of plan to get rid of the abortion clinic by rezoning uh, that section of town uh, such that medical services cannot be provided there, which sets off the people in women care as as kind of like a counter move. That's when they like start uh, uh, trying to get Susan Day to come in to like raise awareness, fundraise, so on and so forth. Uh, and then Ledecker is like, but this is also pointless because the actual hospital in Derry is right next door to the women's clinic. Uh, and so therefore, if the rezone happened, they would literally have abolished the hospital. So it's uh, from his perspective, right? right it's just not going to happen. And the cop basically has this uh, uh, whole spiel that concludes with. Don't these people realize these people on both sides that history is over and we just got to like live with it right like <laughs> yeah i the the general perspective ralph says something very similar right and that's also bound up in his uh, uh carolyn his first wife that you know their inability to get pregnant uh, several characters in the novel say essentially yeah we're at the end of history <laughs> you know we're at the stable state of democracy and the stable state of democracy is that you can Uh, Go and get an abortion on demand. The words abortion on demand are used constantly throughout this this book, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, You can go get an abortion, and all you have to do is walk through a 15-person-foot-deep harassment campaign every time you do it. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Like, that's that's the way things need to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. People need to have their voice heard on this issue. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and everyone, and I'm not saying that in order to, like, be reductive of this novel. I'm not saying this in order to, like, be cruel in some way to Stephen King, although I don't know if I could do that on this issue, right? I think that this book is is appealing to a very common sensibility, and it's a common sensibility that is actually very hurtful, right? You know, I, I think I could I could say things that are much more direct about this um, that, that I'm not going to, but... Uh, like that's, that's the opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is the, the multiple characters, a spouse, the idea that the way that, uh, abortion providing works circa 1992 is just the way it is, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's like acceptable. And, uh, anyone who advocates harder for an abortion and for access to abortion or for women's capability to make healthcare decisions about their lives that those people are unreasonable and ultimately stirring the pot and perhaps are just as bad as people walking around with, uh, you know, 
uh, abortion imagery on a placard and waving it in women's faces. Those are the same. Throwing uh, dolls filled with blood through the windows of the abortion clinic. Those are all the same. Yep. Uh, Inviting a speaker to town is the same thing as throwing, right, smashing the windows uh, and throwing dolls filled with blood through. And that is uh, so ridiculous. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, like in the in the book, it doesn't even make sense to even think of these things as, as roughly equivalent. And yet, multiple characters just full throated do it. Again, do I think that that's Steve's exact opinion? Probably not. And I also think that that King, I think you know, in his rip from the headlines, you know, I speak for the average American kind of shtick that he does. Right? You know, mm-hmm. he has said repeatedly in interviews that we've talked about that. Uh, not everything he says or the things that he depicts in his novel or things he believes. He appeals to what he considers to be a common sensibility. I think that he think, thinks the common sensibility on this is is that everyone's cool with all of this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's made very clear by like the narrative apparatus, not just like people saying it, but the way that events are described and what events happen, which is that uh, the Gloria Steinem like stand-in, right? Susan Day yeah. gets her head lopped off. Mm-hmm. In a in a paragraph that reads as a gag, it, it is a gag, right? Yeah, yeah. That basically Ed Deep no uh, nosedives his plane into the parking lot, and it blow. It, so our big abortion is bad guy. Mm-hmm. He dies, mm-hmm. and in the same moment that he dies, his his uh, schematic equivalent in the novel also dies. Mm-hmm. And that's like that. That I don't know. I mean, it's played as a gag. I think it's meant to be like comedic justice. Yes, right? exactly. All everyone's gone. All the people that caused a problem in this book are gone. <laughs> Dusting our hands off here. Right. It's fucking ridiculous, right? Like it's just silly. Yeah. Yep. Uh. So yes. <laughs> All of that happens. Basically, I I think I I. I Absolutely agree that we shouldn't like align this too closely with King's personal opinions, because I do think there's an element of strategy here. Uh, Some of the ways that you can see like the influence influence of this book. uh, Well, you know, chronology is weird. If he starts writing it in 1990, that means uh, needful things is actually on the horizon. Uh, But there's a Mm -hmm. little bit of that there. Right. Like what is kind of the hot button issue that you can uh, slam on repeatedly uh, that will basically drive an everyday uh, person up the wall, like to the point of murder, right? That's like a shared theme here. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, it's like the one issue, it's abortion. Uh, And uh, it it would seem like, you know, the, the thing that Steve settles on, regardless of whatever he personally thinks, like the thing that he settles on is like a good bet for what to put in this book to appeal to his audience, however he conceives of that, is this uh, stance toward abortion that abortion is necessary, right? It like has a social benefit. It it should be provided. Um, And also we should all feel kind of bad about it, right? The best way you can feel about abortion is ambivalent. Yeah, right. That that is, uh, that is a view that is espoused by every like, pro-abortion <laughs> character in the whole novel. Right. Like, that's the best they can sum up, you know. Uh, and the people who say anything more um, uh, affirmative than that are, are not characters. Right. You know, it's the the head of, uh, uh, what, women care? Yeah. The head of the, head of the clinic and uh, Susan Day, right? They're, like, they're barely in the book, you know, in terms of, like, things that 
they are they are little cutouts to be puppeted around in order to make the plot go right. And um, the other get perspectives. The other interesting alignment here that I noticed is um, you talked about Ralph, uh, him and Carolyn not being able to have kids, and this results in their feelings of ambivalence uh, about abortion. Right. This is a this has come right. up a couple points. Uh, is people who feel ambivalent about abortion because they either could not have kids. Or had kids and lost them. So in the mm-hmm. stand complete and uncut, there's like a long discussion that Franny has with her dad where uh, her dad explains like he doesn't want like he doesn't think abortions are good because she had a brother who died and he like feels so bad about them losing a child that he just thinks abortion shouldn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. So this this is like a perspective that I think King is uh, aware of and sort of sensitive to and wants to incorporate like that is the thing that seems to come up the most and like the thing that really makes people feel ambivalent about abortion is like, well, what about all the people who can't have kids or all the people who lost mm-hmm. kids? Yeah. Uh, and I have family members who have this exact perspective. Exactly. I have heard these words said to me uh, explicitly by some of my most ardently you know, anti-abortion uh, for both religious and personal reasons, relatives, right? Mm-hmm. And and their perspective is, you know, I had a child and I lost it or it died, you know, very young. Uh, and uh, I, it's just unconscionable that someone should do this. Mm-hmm. And I also have relatives who have had extremely premature children and that informs their opinions about abortion, right? Well, if I had a child two and a half months early, right, which which has been the case, essentially, mm-hmm. um, then if that is the case, then what what is abortion doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what is the thing? And so, you know, uh, these are real opinions that human beings have. This yeah. is not like a thing that Stephen right. King is inventing. Well, same thing about, uh, I think abortions should be legal, but also we should feel ambivalent about them, right? That's also a thing that yeah. I've gotten in my family, uh, uh, also anti-abortion sentiment, but also like the feeling that I got from a lot of my family, like the things have been explicitly said to me is like, yeah, like that should be available. And also it should not be as this novel always puts it like on demand, right? It should not be used as birth control. Um, And yeah, this is a common, like I've, I've taught courses explicitly on abortion, specifically the legality of abortion. Um, I actually did that last fall. mm -hmm. We spent a full half semester just working through it, reading legal documents, doing all that kind of stuff. And I would say that was probably in my class, two thirds of them where they kind of landed mm-hmm. on it, which was like, and I don't care, like to be clear, right? Like my purpose in ever teaching about these issues is never like conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I have um, uh, pretty closely held beliefs about abortion in the sense of like, as one can tell from the conversation, I think it's an important like social mechanism. And I think that I'm probably, uh, more liberal on it than the average human being, um, uh, you know, in, in the United States. And so in, in teaching a course like that, the purpose, at least for me, is never like everyone's got to get on the same page as me. Um, but I do think that having an opinion about it in the world and saying that you have any kind of expressed politics does require you to know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way I sold it to to students and and work, work through why I thought that class was important to them, which is like, hey, look, I you can feel any way you want to about it. Like, ultimately, this is not a class about changing your mind, but you do need to know every single mechanism that is involved in this massive political process, particularly because, you know, uh, of the single voter issue. Um, uh, concern that emerges in the 80s and continues to today. Some people only vote on that. Um, and it sneaks in uh, huge amounts of political uh, baggage with it, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, if you can be the candidate on the uh, right side of that issue for whatever your area is, you can get a lot of other stuff through, mm-hmm. right? Uh, based on single issue voters. And so 
it was always, it was a really interesting class, but at, at the end of it, I think the majority of the students, more than 50%, landed on exactly what you're saying, which is like uh, uh, politically, conceptually, um, pragmatically, it is probably socially necessary, and yet I would never feel good about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and lots of them were explicitly saying that. Right. Um, so I don't think that's an uncommon opinion even. Right. Yeah, and we get all sorts of other opinions uh, in this novel because uh, speaking of our uh, bonus episode on the mist and everything and in the way that that kind of plays out, I was actually really surprised at the overlap between this book and that story and what happens in that movie uh, (laughs) where we get like, here's a new character and they're going to be the mouthpiece for a perspective that a person could have on this issue. So I'm thinking of like when uh, Lois and Ralph go to, I think a diner and they have uh, a waitress who Mm. has a Zoe, Zoe, the waitress, Zoe, the waitress who has like a pro-life pin. And she gives us like, basically she gets to operate as like the normal human anti-abortion person. Like the yeah. person who's not totally deranged. Uh, yeah, because everyone else is literally every other character we get who is anti-abortion is literally a terrorist. <laughs> and I don't mean that like in some abstract sense. I mean, literally, they show up at some point in the novel with either a bomb or a gun or whatever. Right. That is the in terms of the number of characters we get who voice a perspective. That's the majority of. Them. Right. Um, so, yeah. Right. So like we get her and she talks through it. Uh, I don't think we ever get Joe Weiser's opinion. I'm sorry. I, I missed him in our roundup of characters. Joe Weiser is like the supporting character who provides exposition about insomnia. Uh, <laughs> he he uh, used to be wise, but now he's wiser. Yeah, <laughs> that's a funny joke. It is fun. Uh, Joe Weiser is like Joe Weiser has the feeling of like a character who uh, show, show like was written maybe at first to serve a function and then just became so fun that Stephen King had to like bring him back for little background bits. Yeah, he's fun. Um, he's good. We do get some uh, older people talking about, uh, you know, one of their wives dies in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And so he has also like complex. So we get these old dots of characters. Right, right. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. He here is this issue. Here are characters who kind of represent um, perspectives on this issue and provide like life histories that would suggest here is why a person might have this perspective. Right. Um, So we we sort of get all of that. uh, But then one of the other kind of big weaknesses of the novel uh, that maybe if you've been listening, you can intuit is like. The imagination, uh, aside from that, for like how these movements arise, anti-abortion movements in this case, um, and how people come to them is very thinly thought. So the, the the entire story of Ed Deepno is the story of like single issue radicalization, right? This uh, at, at one point, Ralph speculates, you know, uh, probably what it was is that Ed uh, always uh sort of disliked abortion like whatever his like open stance was it was something he didn't like uh or uh felt kind of negatively on and then when uh, atropos uh gets his hands on him he starts like manipulating him and then we we get to the actual contents of the novel um so it's this process of radicalization uh but it's a and this is fiction right in fiction, things are metaphors, and they don't have to be literal and mapped to everything in the real world. So what we have created here is a metaphor of radicalization, 
But metaphors have consequences. And one of the consequences of this metaphor by like uh, reducing the process of radicalization to just like a magical evil doctor from a higher level of reality got into this guy's head and like made him go nuts uh, that overlooks and rather conveniently in some ways for kind of the politics of the novel, uh, the actual things that happen in the real world that uh, people who have these opinions do or the ways that they like bring people into other people right into their movement, um, say like it is conspicuous, actually, again, thinking about the mist and stuff that happens there. It is conspicuous how none of the anti-abortion people are religious fundamentalists, or if they are, it's extremely right. like subdued, backgrounded. And we know Stephen King, the mist, Carrie, it's, we could go on. Stephen King loves him a villainous fundamentalist. Uh, yeah, the the talisman. Right, right. <laughs> the, the boy's home, right? The religious boy's home that literally is just a factory for killing children. Right. <laughs> right, like literally. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, 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 right. So, like, none of that is there. There are no real like politicians at work here uh, wh who are like manipulating the abortion issue. Uh, the most extreme anti-abortion uh, folks in the novel, um, like Ed, uh, are presented as basically loners who are like radicalized on this issue because of some personal default that they are trying to paper over. Uh, the uh, mostly clinical insanity. Yes. Like classic Stephen King, uh, you know what I mean? Like they're not a complete person. So then therefore they are filled with evil energies. Right. Right. So there's like the guy who ends up like shooting up the women's shelter and uh, earlier than that, like tries to kill Ralph. And he's just like he's just, you know, this loose cannon. Like that is a guy who is going to kill someone eventually. I think maybe he's the one who's throwing stuff through the windows at the women's clinic. Um, uh, so there's like him and then there's like a woman. And of course, like the woman is uh, she's described as fat, unattractive. She's got all this acne. Uh, she has absolutely no children and has never had a romantic partner. But she wears a shirt that says baby factory on it. Uh, yeah, she says that she's had 14 kids and has never had any children. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, right. Like they're they're all presented as sort of like these incomplete humans. They're they're losers. Uh, and every like their their entire uh, orientation toward abortion is not held out of uh, anything like actual principle or like religious belief. It's all like personal hang ups that have compounded into psychosis. Uh, yeah. And, and like you can see the narrative framework that I think King is trying to draw, which is like not one that I endorse in any kind of way. But uh, like the pitch here is everyone who makes this their single issue concern as an anti-abortionist mm -hmm. is a fucking loser. Right. Like that, that is the like the pitch here that is being like thrown every single time. Like mm -hmm. we get it 15 times over the course of this novel. So like in the imaginary of King, I think, right, I can't mm -hmm. really say, but I think that he's like, yeah, my politics on this is pretty clear. They're all big losers. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like not even people. Right. 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 Like, there you go. There's, there's the but then there's this additional layer that, that you're about to talk about that I think complicates that in a very uh, not as interesting way. Well, I mean, what, what do you think I was getting ready to talk about? Oh, I thought you were going to talk about like the the entire metaphysics oh. of uh, Clotho and Lachesis <laughs> yes. and all these oh. people, right? Yeah, I'll I'll okay. get there. I just wanted to mention uh, okay. just some historical sure. context because it was I was reading reviews of this book and it was notable to me. Um, I think also the thing to note is that these things that we're critiquing King for, 
I, I think we're making good critiques. I think they're fair critiques. Um, but I think King in his moment is maybe not too out of step with like the broader culture. Uh, because I was looking into this, trying to figure out uh, some of the timelines about uh, uh, violence at abortion clinics. Uh, there were the first uh, bombings of clinics in 1984, um, but the first uh, uh, murder carried out by an anti-abortion activist was of Dr. David Gunn in 1993, so the year before this book came out. Um, and I think in we're, you know, the... the, the update like half of the world or whatever. I don't know. Like bring bring the moment in time forward. I do not think if this book, if all of these events happened in the way that they did and kind of the timeline that they did and then this book came out, I do not think you would find many reviews that would not remark upon, hey, last year, this guy shot a doctor outside an abortion clinic, right? And now here right. we have Stephen King uh, writing the story about a domestic terrorist, a, 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 a civic center attack, uh, uh, hinging upon this very issue, right? I think that those two things will be brought into direct dialogue uh, in a way that is intended for, like, the, the reading audience to then, like, discuss or think about or whatever, you know, however that's going to play out. The reviews of this novel never mention it. Like they just sort of refer to the to the like the abortion debate in kind of the abstract. But I think notably, there is no one at the time who was being like, hey, by the way, the anti-abortion movement actually uh, has this and this and this into place and so on and so forth. Right. I think um, not only is like King's kind of tactic of saying these are all losers, <laughs> uh, right. his own thing. I think it's probably fitting in with the picture that his audience has as well. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, I think so. And like I said, I don't I don't think that the general pitch here, like the the mainline what is the the political belief at the core of it, um I don't I don't think it's that off from today, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think it is mostly um the uh you know, the the gutting of uh Roe v. Wade, right? Mm -hmm. Um that uh that has made people be like, well, we have gone out of the, you know, the mainline political opinion here where it is no longer federally protected. So then therefore we gotta come back the other way, which is like what all the con what our contemporary polling says, right? Mm -hmm. People think that um in some passive way at least that abortion should be legal. Right. Overwhelmingly they believe right. that. Right. Like that ambivalence. Um, and so yeah. Yeah, that ambivalence is real. Like <laughs> Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and I've had long, extensive conversations with, with young people about mm -hmm. it. Right. And um, so, I, yeah, I think that, that that is the thing. But there's this additional. Way, so all of this is like, oh, well, Steve's doing this thing and it's like in a real Steve mode and it is whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think this is made much more complicated and perhaps bad. Mm hmm. At the next, like, layer up the tower, as it were. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, uh, to then, like, thread the needle here and bring all these themes together, uh, the other thing that becomes really interesting about this book is that Clotho and uh, Lachesis and uh, Atropos, even, um, all also kind of, uh, this is not explicitly a connection made in the text, but thematically it's there, right? They're all kind of analogized to not abortion specifically, but really this question of like the termination of life. What is life? When is life done? How does it end? So on and so forth. Um, with Clotho and Lachesis being kind of, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're the good ones, right? When they end life, it's, uh, Ralph thinks of it as natural, but they also, and I thought this was really fascinating. They, they tell him there is no natural death. Like, <laughs> 
that that like the implication being because they also talk. I can't for I cannot believe we forgot this. Ralph and Lois become energy vampires. Oh, that's right. Right? Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, we did forget to talk about that. <laughs> It'll we'll, we'll talk about it maybe more later because I have uh, it's one of my kingisms is this, um, but. <laughs> Uh, Ralph and Lois, uh, again, calling back to Cocoon, uh, they can, like, feed off of people's auras, and this actually de-ages them, right? It makes them younger, and they look younger, and they're more active, and they're more capable, and they feel really bad about it, because they're like... Oh, because they, they they do it almost reflexively at first, right? It's like a, they, they don't even they don't realize that they can do it until they do it. And they're like, well, I feel a certain sort of way about this. Not great. Um, and then Clotho and Lachesis uh, explain to them. They're like, oh, no, do this as much as you want. <laughs> And don't feel bad uh, because every human being is a vast ocean of energy and it would be basically impossible for you to actually siphon off enough energy to hurt someone, Um, which is, I mean, okay, right? Um, (laughs) uh, But the implication then when they say also that there is no natural death is, you know, the the other worlds than these, uh, that uh, death is not in fact an obliteration, that is in fact a kind of like transference or a kind of passing on into, I don't know, some other level of the tower or whatever. Basically, death isn't real, right? Death is a a thing that uh, you can see situationally, but in the broader perspective, uh, you know, it's all part of the great multiversal circle of life or whatever. Um, All very new age. Yes. We are beings of energy. Yes. Uh, We change states because energy and matter are all the same, man. Uh, So then the real distinction becomes uh, uh, between um, the good doctors and the bad doctor. Uh, Clotho and Lachesis, uh, they end life, you know, appropriately, like when, when the moment is right, uh, they do it kindly, uh, and, uh, Atropos does it inappropriately, cruelly, uh, and this then raises this question, right? It's like, well, you know, who is calling these shots? Like the purpose and the random, um, the, the point being that like death is always going to come, right? Like death or whatever we recognize as death is always going to hit you. Uh, but the particular circumstance of this changes. Um, and then sort of the other weird thing here is that the, the kind of final irony that the novel tries to pull off, uh, is that Ed Deepno, one of the things he talks about is these centurions, which um, uh, meaning like Roman centurions, uh, this is like very much like a, a fundamentalist Christian uh, uh, rhetoric about like government agents and like comparing them to the Roman Empire, right? The centurions who slaughtered Christ and that sort of thing. Um, he also talks about the Herod story, again, very common in, in religious anti-abortion circles, uh, where King Herod, once he hears that there's going to be this uh, prophesied Messiah, uh, orders all the firstborn sons to be killed in order to take out uh, the one life, uh, the, the the Messiah's life, right, Jesus, uh, that would uh, uh, overthrow him. Um, so Ed gets pulled into this whole thing uh, through this language of religious fundamentalism, uh, saying, you know, we have to stop Herod. Uh, like, what is right? right? Like, what? what uh, uh, I think maybe the, the thing that gets more broad traction these days in these circles is probably talking about, like, the Holocaust. Uh, but the, the same idea that there is, like, a mass slaughter being carried out and we need to stop it. Um, but the irony is that it turns out uh, Atropos has, like, uh, subverted this myth such that he is employing 
uh, Ed as a tool of Herod, i.e. the Crimson King, to kill 2,000 people, mainly to get rid of this one little boy who is going to do something important in the future, right? So um, the... Uh, uh, the actual like literal issue of abortion being like fictionalized and dramatized in this novel then gets like pulled up into the the meta author commentary machinery of the whole thing in a way that's really odd. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that brings us to the uh, end, I guess, because we can then talk about uh, like Ralph's Ralph's big deal. Last, uh, King is right. The last chunk of this book is great. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, uh, gosh, they flay, right? The, the magical little green men flay Ralph's arm mm -hmm. and import it with a magical symbol mm -hmm. and then heal it back up. And it is both a bomb, basically, that he uses to punch the dudes in the face the crimson king in the face right, yeah so they do that he gets like yeah his weird arm bomb and then also this we, we can mention this we haven't up until now because it's so weird and out of nowhere lois meets like another deity thing <laughs> called the green man who gives her uh, a pair of earrings of hers that atropos stole and uh i know a lot of the fan theories about the green man who's presented very briefly and uh, very much like a thing that could have been cut, perhaps, in an edit, as kind of like this opposing force to the Crimson King. And I know a lot of the fan theories mm. like tried to connect the green man up with the turtle, I think, because turtles are green. Oh, tur some turtles yeah, are some green. Some turtles yeah. are green. Uh, but she also like meets this guy and then he like gives her these earrings. And so Ralph comes into this final battle armed with, uh, yeah, the bomb arm. And then these two earrings, one that he uses to like, he stabs it into the Crimson King's catfish eye. And the other one he tries to stab Ed Deepno with. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, this is such the fanfic of or not fanfic, but fan wiki. I'm getting my fan terms mixed up. It's the fan wikiification of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, I just like the green man. Like, you know, what are the theories? And of course, on the Dark Tower wiki, affiliation, the white. Mm hmm. Yep. I don't know. Also, what is that? You know right. what I mean? It's just a funny. Well, it's like, well, it's obviously like, well, the green man is allied with the white. Yeah, right. And it's like, <laughs> all right, well, whatever you're saying here. But. Uh, but yeah, so he, uh, he, he, you know, uses his like powerful bomb arm, but there's a deal that's made. Mm -hmm. He, he can, because, uh, Atropos, this little gremlin says, ha ha ha, uh, because they, oh, we didn't even say this. God, at some point they capture Atropos and they take oh, his little oh, knife from him and they start carving the flesh off the bag. They start flaying him alive. There's a lot of flaying involved. They, oh, just torture and then Ralph's barfing while he's uh -huh. doing it because he hates doing it and he's just like cutting Atropos' skin apart and then because these are like little fairy tale creatures just as much as they are anything else they cannot tell a lie and if they make a promise they're bound by the promise and so then therefore he makes Atropos promise to not bother them and not like try to kill them while they are trying to get rid of Ed to get Atropos out of the picture and Atropos shows him a little uh, future image using his fingers it's also fairy tale shit uh, where he says that he's going to kill Ed Deepno and Helen Deepno's child, Natalie, at some point in the future. And so uh, uh, Ralph is like, nuh-uh, buddy. And then he makes this deal. 
I actually don't know what Clotho and Lachesis get out of this deal whatsoever, other than he punches the Crimson King in the face, yeah. in his eyeball. The end being that his life will be traded for Natalie's. Yes. And not just like in an abstract sense, but in like a rules of reality sense. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's the fantasy rules. I So the, the detail that I need to mention here, <laughs> just because it's so weird... So when Ralph and Lois head off on their like little trek to to really uh, face down with Atropos, we get this conspicuous moment where Lois has to rearrange the slip under her dress that she's wearing. And it's like, OK, and there's like this like weird conversation where she's like, I must be losing weight. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on? Wouldn't you yeah. know it? This is Chekhov's loose slip because how they capture Atropos is like oh, that's she right. drops her slip and they like wrap him up in it. So when when Ralph takes the scalpel and he's like torturing Atropos, Atropos is also like wrapped up in a woman's slip. And it's just it's one of those situations where like the the very fact of like thinking through what are the things in this story and what are they doing feels so absurd. <laughs> but I um I'll adapt it. Okay. If if someone's working on insomnia adaption, I'll work on it. I'll figure it out. I will figure out how to make two 70-year-old people wrapping up a little <laughs> alien man in a woman's slip and then carving the flesh off the back of its perfectly orbular head. I'll make it cool. <laughs> Okay, I've been thinking about it. I can do it. You will make that visually parse as something to be taken seriously and not mm-hmm. like one of the weirdest things ever committed to visual media. Yes, I will do it. I'm going to do it like the Saeed torture episode from Lost. We got it. Like, we're all, it'll all be good. Ralph will be flashing back, you know what I mean, to yeah. be in Germany or whatever. And part of the rear echelon. Oh, my God. Uh, but anyway, so they do all of that. And they torture this little gremlin. Anyway, the end of the book is Ed Deepno is dead. Patrick Danville lives. We get a time cut of five years. Mm-hmm. And then we get just kind of like what I do think is really great writing. Mm-hmm. I think it in, in some ways it was like, oh, I'm glad I read the rest of this book that was like on and off for me. which I didn't really enjoy reading at the end of the day. Because it really does. It's a great setup. It's a great 700-page setup or 750-page setup for an amazing 40 pages here at the end. Mm-hmm. 40, 50. Um, because, uh, yeah, we just get their life together and we get, like, what it's like to, you know, be over 70. And, uh, you know, there's this anxiety throughout the whole book of, like, um, you know, after real life is what Ralph keeps saying, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, after you retire, you're kind of just not treated like like a whole person anymore, right? You know, you're you're, you're invisible to young people, all this kind of stuff. And we get like, what you know, if if one is happy in those years and one has friends and whatever, then it could be really great. And they just they do a lot of cool stuff, and and it really does pay off really well until it comes time, you know. At the beginning of the novel, we haven't really mentioned this, but at the beginning of the novel, he knew his wife was dying because he started experiencing uh, insomnia, the beginning of insomnia, because he could hear what he called the death clock. Mm-hmm. And it was ticking inside of her all the time. And, you know, it's this really great evocation. I love Metalocalypse. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Little. Like, that's what's happening. doctors. <laughs> oh, they take your life. <laughs> 
up the tower, up the tower, up the <laughs> yes, tower, down yes. the tower, up the tower, up the tower. Brendan Small, uh, reach out. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Uh, but anyway, so he starts hearing the death clock again. And, and so it's kind of like the beginning of the novel, rewriting itself, and it's rewriting itself, but he's hearing his own death clock. Do, 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 do. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so uh, he eventually comes to the moment where he... You know, the the recognition comes to him. And over this time, they've forgotten everything that happened. Mm-hmm. Like, he's forgotten that he dead sticks uh, Calvin, or not Calvin, but uh, <laughs> Deep No into the ground. Yeah, Calvin Tower is who I'm getting it flipped yeah. with, the other Deep mm-hmm. No. Um, but, you know, he's he forgets that he does that. They forget the little bald doctors, all that kind of stuff. And then they start in those last few days remembering it again. It's really mm-hmm. cool. And it's really not all that complicated. He uh, goes down the street. Uh, he's going to get some ice cream because it's too hot. He goes down the street and uh, he sees Natalie, who is five years old, who is about to cross the street. And um, uh, Atropos is there being the most gremlin, whoever, whoever gremlin. Mm-hmm. And he's still this little asshole guy. And um, he, Ralph, jumps in front of the car instead of uh, the kid. Mm-hmm. There's a car coming. And it's this really cool little recreation of a previous scene in the book that I, we don't have to get into because it doesn't really matter. And... Uh, and he jumps in front of the car and gets hit by the car, and it is so weird. Like, the description here, and, like, the kind of depth of, of it, and Lois tries to stop him, and he's, like, basically, like, hey, I got a deal that I made, and, by the way, he made this deal by being, like, Lois, stay over here, I'm gonna talk to the doctors by myself. Mm-hmm. It's a real, I don't know, you know, like, she cannot be a full person and a full participant in any of these conversations about like the real metaphysical shit right. or about the real future. Cause like old men guard the real future. Um, old men got old men. They <laughs> old run the world. Men, yeah. I've heard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so he jumps in front of the thing, but then we get this really descriptive thing about like him, like tumbling and breaking his back and all this shit. And lo and behold, not that long later, Stephen King is going to get hit by a fucking car. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I, if you're Steve, you gotta be like, oh, did I do that? Mm hmm. Did I, like, write that into reality? Um, but uh, anyway, and then Atropos, like, fucks off, I guess. He's just mad. He's, like, gremlin Rumpelstiltskin stomping, yeah. like, on the ground. <laughs> off screen as Ralph dies. Yep, yep. Uh, and because you brought it up, we should just, like, revisit the point of Atropos. If you haven't read this, like, he straight up is just uh, uh, Bugs Bunny swearing a lot. Right. Yeah. He's like, I, he calls them. I, I actually like the one thing that I like about sort of the way that he is written is the fact that he calls them shorts. Right. Like he's got that kind of dismissive, like, ah, oh, you yes. short. The, the, the problem with it is that it does give him this kind of in my mind. Right. He's like, ah, you short timer. Yes. He sounds like that. He sounds like a, he is. a. He's not Bugs Bunny. Right. He is. Uh, he's the baby uh, oh, from baby uh, the last action hero. Oh, OK. <laughs> I think that's the same yeah, guy yeah. as the baby with the cigar in his yes, mouth. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's that baby. Oh, he's he's a real guy. Yeah, oh, I'm a baby. It's like, I'll fuck you up, shorts. I'll fuck you up and all your friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's bad. Well, he's like, <laughs> there's that scene where he's like malevolently jump roping. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes, he's like about, he's like he bites a big uh, chunk out of a hat. Yeah. He's he's wearing earrings, which is like very funny to imagine this little gremlin guy running around in earrings and a big broad hat. Yeah. Like he he and his like dirty smock. Every single part of it does not visually cohere. By the way, though, if you got I don't know two or three million dollars, I'm willing to adapt it. I'll figure it mm-hmm. out. But yes, uh, I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, the novel ends. 
That's in the novel. He dies. He dies poignantly, mm -hmm. and he goes on to some other world. I, I will spoil something in the future. Okay. Ralph does not show up in the Dark Tower novels, and I wish he did. Mm-hmm. I know lots. Like, can you mm -hmm. imagine that? You, like, go to the little, you know, whatever. You go to End World out there, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, there's all these people, like, toiling and having hell, and he's just, like, sitting there. <laughs> he's like, I haven't slept in 15 years. So many people in, like, the list. You know, this is the, well, we'll talk about this more when we get to the books, right? But there was just so much anticipation on, like, the listserv of, like, who do you want to show up, basically, in the back half of the Dark Tower? And Ralph was definitely, he had his fans. Yeah. I want him to show up. He doesn't show up. I, I will. I will spoil it for people. No more Ralph. Mm -hmm. He's out of here. Um, um, you want to do some segments? Uh, sure thing. Uh, the first segment is my favorite Kingism. Uh, this is the part of the show where we go through uh what we just read and each of us picks something that we think is our kingism for that book and that's a, a piece of prose a word choice some sort of like stylistic move uh that for either of us is just like representative of what stephen king's style is typically in a good way sometimes more ambivalent or goofy uh mine today is a little bit uh goofy it comes from Later in the novel, so after, this is this is uh, back on the energy vampire thing. I'm glad we set that up so I wouldn't have to explain it now. So, uh, Ralph and Lois realize they're energy vampires, feel ambivalent about it. Uh, Clotho and Lachesis are like, ah, oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> like, drink people's auras as much as you want, whatever. Notably, uh, despite this, they don't stop feeling bad about it, and therefore, from that point forward, when they do it, kind of only they make a kind of point of only doing it to people they don't like <laughs> or who are unpleasant in some yeah, way who are annoying yes in some way yeah so it's the ultimate like uh like uh like old person deals with other people like uh, because we get a lot of like uh the social mores of the elderly in Maine, mm -hmm. you know, they got that friend who she's got the very straight back and all that kind of stuff. And she's like, always shit talking Ralph, but being like, you can bring your shirt to men to me. It's just good Christian values. Right. You know, <laughs> good Christian work is that it's important to like help out your neighbor, even though I think you're personally very annoying. Right. <laughs> you know, that's her thing. And that's kind of how they treat basically anyone they suck energy out of. Right? right. It's like, I find you annoying. I will do nothing to harm you. But I will slightly take some of your energy. <laughs> so there's a, a a scene where Ralph and Lois are kind of like bopping around on some into town or another. And they pass these like two kids who are like little. They're not even teenagers, right? They're like little dirt bags. And they're like hollering swears at each other. And they're like in the street. And it's like a school day. And Ralph yeah, is like, you know who they are, right? You know who these kids are? Uh, Who? They're Bart Simpson. Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> They're both Bart Simpsons. Yes, they are. They're Bart Simpsons. I, th I thought you were, like, gesturing at, like, actual characters in the Kingiverse. I wish. Um, uh... So like they're they're like being rude and everything, and uh, Ralph ends up like uh, uh, drinking the aura of one of them. Uh, but what was delightful to me about this was Stephen King trying to write a dirtbag kid in the '90s because it does feel like we've hit some sort of like uh, choke point or whatever where th this character doesn't quite uh, cohere. Uh, so one of the kids is noted as specifically wearing a Nirvana T-shirt. 
and he says uh he's like yelling at his friend because he's like uh uh like not keeping up with him as they're uh riding around goddamn wet end the one in the nirvana t-shirt yelled indignantly as his, at his friend he was perhaps 11 what the hell's the matter with you you ride a bike like old people fuck which which comes up repeatedly yeah <laughs> Like, do, doing a blank, like, old people fuck, that's from It, right? Uh, I think so, yeah. Uh, but I just, yeah, like, so that was part of it, is, like, uh, this kid is wearing a Nirvana t-shirt, but he's also talking, like, basically he's talking like Richie Tozier. Um, yes, yes, right? 100%. Like, the, the, like, imagining an 11-year-old boy in 1994 calling his friend a wet end, there's something I, it could have happened, right? I was actually much younger than 11 in 1994. I don't know what swears the 11 year olds were coming up with, but there is something so specifically dated about the way that this kid talks, uh, despite the fact that he's just like this dirt bag on a, a in a Nirvana T-shirt on his bike. I will say that my very brave wife tried to read a recent Stephen King novel mm-hmm. and said that Stephen King's writing of teenagers was so painful to read that she could not finish it. <laughs> And so, like, people are going to get called a wet end up until, like, 2022, I think, right. <laughs> by by teenagers. Uh, so just that, that kid itself is the thing for you. Right. Well, I mean, that, it, it's a kingism to me, right? It's like, here's this, it's a, it's a kingy character type, shitty little kid. He's been updated for the 90s, and yet, like, stare at him for, like, a second longer than you have to, and you actually can, like, read him back to 1958. <laughs> Right, and there's no no gap. Right, <laughs> uh, mine is just chapter thirty, which is like a big one. But chapter thirty is like the uh, lots of shit happening chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, it is equivalent to the uh, the town of Haven blows up chapter from uh, Tommy Knockers, which is really good. You know, or like all the big stuff occurs. You know, the ship takes off chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, so it like starts with like uh, you know the plane hits the ground in the uh, in the parking lot. And then the C4 that's in the plane that, you know, he was going to use to, like, make it make it be even a huger explosion. That one blows up. And then, like, we just get all of these, like, little stages. You know, the cop that is standing beside our, like, uh, friend cop that we were in the book. Like, he gets blown into a pole and ripped in half and stuff. Like, there's just all of this stuff, and you know, like, major eventual action happening. And uh, I think, like, the, you know, King has really gotten good at this he is good at decompressing a action scene into lots of component parts and then showing us all those component parts Mm -hmm. and i like that a lot which is really interesting because we'll see like the same thing happen you know it'll be like the explosion happens and then the explosion will happen again but we'll see it from someone else's perspective we saw this happen in needful things as well Mm Um, but what's notable to me is like, this is the thing that like Michael Bay is going to get dinged for, you know, post bad boys too, is like re-showing the same explosion over and over and over again. And he is of course being influenced by like Hong Kong cinema, uh, action cinema in particular, you know, watching Jackie Chan do the stunt from seven different angles back to back to back. Mm -hmm. Um, and Bay is adapting that for much bigger stunts that are, you know, pyrotechnics involved, all that kind of stuff. But King is doing it, too, and King does it in text in a really cool way, and he'll keep doing this the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got some really good ones ahead of us, which I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. But that that's mine, is is that whole chapter is like a Kingian thing. This is also the chapter, by the way, where I believe um, 
we're we're uh, you know we get our finger one of our instances of finger waving of like <laughs> everyone on every side of this issue outside of the norm is bad because someone says I bet that explosion was caused by those anti-abortion nutsos I'd kill them if I could <laughs> and it's like all right all right buddy we get it yeah if you go to the rally you don't go to the rally or it, it, the the best thing to do if there's a fundraiser for that's in any way involved within uh, somewhere that provides an abortion mm-hmm. okay. The best thing to do is go in your house and close the blinds and <laughs> <laughs> sit quietly for the two hours while it happens. That's the best thing to do. The share zone for cowards. <laughs> <laughs> you see in a, you you see a fundraiser for a women's health clinic. Hit the bricks. Right? <laughs> Just get out right? of town. Just don't be there. Uh, okay? Uh, it's bad. All right. But uh, our next segment's what in the Kingiverse? Yeah, we've already... All the different connections. Yeah. We covered a good bit of this. Obviously, this takes place in Derry. Uh, I've mentioned that the storm from It is referenced several times, but uh, Mike Hanlon shows up as a background character here. Uh, Helen Deepno, she gets a job at the Derry Public Library, and Mike uh, doesn't, I think, I, I don't think Mike ever speaks. Maybe he says one or two things, but like he's there, right? Mike is still head librarian. Uh, the murder of Adrian Mellon is referenced, uh, as well as, you know, the, the black spot, various things from it and kind of the history of Derry. Uh, ben Hanscom is mentioned as the person, the architect who designed the Derry Civic Center. Uh, Ralph has a memory of his mother telling him to uh, double check the uh, potatoes that they were getting from Butch Bowers, because when you bought potatoes from Bowers, he would put like uh, rotten potatoes on the bottom and good potatoes on the top to cheat you. Um, secondhand rows, secondhand clothes, the, uh, the, the, like, you know, uh, thrift vintage store, uh, that Bill in it finds his bike silver in, uh, that shows up here. Interestingly enough, uh, the guy who runs that store in this book is positioned as he's, he's a right winger, right? He's one of the first, uh, people to start, uh, uh, protesting Susan Day. He's got like a poster in the window Mm -hmm. of the store that has like her face in a mugshot. Uh, and, uh, I think it, it's not there, but it's like when Ralph sees another version of that poster somewhere else, there's also like a death threat against Susan Day written in the dust on the glass or something next to it. Um, right. So that's all there. I think what's interesting about this is that in it, when Bill goes into that store, it's it's kind of a weird swerve because uh, there's it's just so specific and clear when uh, Bill goes into the store in it, the person working in the counter is not this guy, but a character who is like very clearly a gay man because he's wearing like a fishnet top and reading like a gay pornographic novel. So, it, like, I spent, like, the first couple pages trying to figure out, like, am I supposed to understand that character doesn't get names? So it's like, is this the same character? No, it is not. I'm pretty sure it is not. Um, but it was just a, a parallel world. Ooh. Uh, so, yeah, Derry talked about it as a, a place where bad things happen. That's another thing. Uh, uh, there's, there's one more. One other character from it. Um, the birdwatching nerd. Stan? Yeah. How does when does Stan show up? Uh, he's the when Ralph is talking to himself in the park at the end. There is a a kid in his twenty or a young man in his twenties who is unnamed, but who is watching him and says he's the person who says, "I hope I don't get that old." Oh well, that's weird. So is Stan Uris time traveling? I don't know. Well, I I think the impl- well no because he's like in his twenties. Uh-huh. 
so I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the thing. There's this kind of like replication crisis right. going on here uh-huh. with like what happens, and I think it's meant to be this like. Um, I, I think there's a few things here that are meant to imply this is dairy, but this is maybe not it's dairy. Right. Not precisely the same one, right? For instance, Bill Denbro right, is never discussed. Right, and, and I think that that is a, um, I think that's the nod from the Crimson King, right? Mm-hmm. Like, shape changing has always been thing. And we also get a thing at the end where things that go down in the sewers don't always stay there. Uh-huh. You know, we get... There's a whole thing that we haven't talked about, which is like the Lord of the Rings reference with the wedding ring from the Deep Nose. It truly does not matter. Yep. Um, but but we get some stuff about the sewer. Uh, so I think that like I think there's a little bit here of the multiple universe stuff that's that kind of um, moving on mm-hmm. and kind of um, uh, stewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think the idea is like the standpipe. I don't know. Well, no, because you're right. Adrian Mellon murder. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to do with right. that. Maybe it's just like a fun thing to be like, there's always kids coming and bird watching. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's a thing that happens yeah. in this universe. Well, this is the thing that I find delightful about this when King does it, is that he he seems actually actively hostile to the impulse to make it all smooth and, and coherent by introducing these, like, slight hints that as much as this dairy looks like the dairy from it, there are pieces that just maybe time has passed, right? Maybe things have changed, or maybe we're just not quite matching up on this level of the tower, right? I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. And and we're using this phrase, levels of the tower, because this is, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, it is the fan lingo for trying to explain a lot of this stuff. Yes. I don't know if that actually shows up, you know, as a, like, a description of parallel universes or something. I'm not sure that that shows up anywhere in a book that I can think of off the dome, right? Like, the phrase, other levels of the tower, mm-hmm. that obviously, that's in this book, that's in, as you said, in the Wastelands. But I'm not sure that that's anywhere else. I don't know. We're, we'll have to find out. It's after yeah. this point, for sure. Yeah. But... Uh, so there's a passing reference, more references. Uh, there's a passing reference to uh, Raymond Joubert, uh, the serial killer from Gerald's Game. Uh, inside you, the tabloid that Richard Dees wrote for and that showed up in uh, uh, the Dead Zone, that is also briefly mentioned. Ludlow is mentioned a couple of times. I already talked about Gage Creed's sneaker being in Atropos's uh, uh, little den. Uh, Haven is also briefly mentioned, and this is also like more evidence to different levels of the tower is that Haven is mentioned, and no one is like, yeah, Haven, that town that blew up and everyone died in, right? Like Haven is there, right. and people live there and it seems pretty normal um uh and then of course like the dark tower is here we've got explicit references to roland and we are going to see more of patrick danville in the future uh in you know a year and a half or whatever yep he'll show up again Mm -hmm. the uh uh, the other thing to mention here too right you know we we've talked about king of and things showing up and that used to be the evil greaser Mm mm-hmm you know, and no, someone in the Discord was talking about this, and it is worth noting that the evil greasers disappear. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mostly gone away, but perhaps being replaced by the rude '90s kid. Yes. <laughs> so, like, like, we just got—I just want to put a, you know, a marker on the Bart that Simpson. Know. The Bart. Maybe we should just call it the Bart <laughs> Simpson. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. Uh, Uncle Stevie's Mixtape, the segment where we go through all of the songs that were played, mentioned, referenced in the novel, at least the ones that I managed to 
find and write down in my notes, uh, and we review them, give our take on them. Uh, so the first song I have here is White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Good four stars. When the truth is round. <laughs> they, uh, Steve has talked about this a shitload of times now. Mm-hmm. Go Ask Alice When She's Ten Feet Tall has showed up like eight times or something. Yep. Like as a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got the Rolling Stones is Stupid Girl. Uh, this is not a well-beloved Rolling Stone song, as far as I know, for a reason. It is not good. Mm-hmm. Two stars. Uh, Boom Boom by The Animals. Uh, four stars. It's got good animals. I want to go back really quickly. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish I was just saying, it's, 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 I, I like The Animals. It's got a good animal sound to it, but it's not the best animals. Uh, the best animals is, of course, the drummer for The Electric Mayhem. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, now, if it had been Garbage's Stupid Girl... Oh, five stars. <laughs> Stephen King referencing garbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got uh, in the court of the Crimson King by King Crimson. Mm-hmm. Four stars. Mm-hmm. This is one of the best songs ever made. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's not a five star. It's not the best songs ever. It's one of the best. It's in the top mm-hmm. 10,000 or something, right? Yeah. I mean, I would give uh, it a five star, but I'm not going to blanch it for I, I it's really good. I you know maybe here's the thing is that it is so better attached to the visual image that if it's not in a movie it might not be able to be five stars. Mm. And I say this, here's why. Can you think of the the like needle drop use of the quarter of the crimson king that is the most effective in a film? Are you thinking of Children of Men? Oh yes, I am. Yeah. As did it. everyone else who has seen that movie. Yeah. So in that in that film, yeah. five stars. In yeah. this book, only four. <laughs> I, I guess, yeah, I can agree with that. I think it gets five stars for me if only because like a, a little prog rock Michael of this era, like <laughs> this was this was a banger. I also this want, is the only King Crimson song I know. Uh I, I also just want to flag something that I think is so fascinating. So You I, wanna flag it? Oh, ah! <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh so this song obviously appears to be where the entire idea of the Crimson King may come from. And in fact, a couple of times, Ed Deepno says, like, we're in the court of the Crimson King, baby, or something to that effect. Yeah, it's its own paragraph break at the end of a chapter. Right. He was in the court of the Crimson King. And it's, I mean, look, it's fucking cool. <laughs> okay, so, it's good. What is interesting about this, and this is something that I'll slightly spoil for the rest of these books as well, uh. One of the other sort of topics of debate that happened on the listserv was like, to what extent is this song telling us something about the greater trajectory of the Dark Tower? Uh, You know, it was like, are there like other clues in here for how the story is going to go? Um, Not only does that not appear to be the case, but in a really fascinating move by King, because it seems like such a non-King move. This song is never actually, to my recollection, explicitly discussed. There is never a point, which I've read enough Stephen King by now that I would expect it for some character to be like, the Crimson King? You mean just like that song? No, right? The the song, uh, the band, does not apparently exist in King's fictional universe, and this song is never actually mentioned as a song. It is only here uh, because it... You, you can't talk about this aspect of this story, I think, without bringing up this song from which it appears to be borrowing. 
that is extremely funny. I'm going to be on the lookout for that. I've yeah. never considered that. Yep. No, I think there's something about uh, uh, you can't acknowledge that your your big ur villain Cthulhu thing. <laughs> it's just stealing from prog rock musicians. Uh, uh, my next song is Pinball Wizard by The Who. Three stars. It's only three stars. I mean, it's no Boris the Spider. He sure plays a mean pinball. Mm. <laughs> Uh, I left my heart in San Francisco. Tony Bennett, four stars. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to have a Tony Bennett song less than four stars? Who could tell? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't sit down by the Devels. Three stars. This is like pretty generic. You definitely did this to me on purpose. Scarborough Fair by Simon and Garfunkel. More like something in Fartfunkel because <laughs> it's one star. Okay. I mean, I, d- I didn't do that to you on purpose, actually. If I were doing anything on purpose, it would have been like stacking the deck. So I got to review the King Crimson song and I explicitly mm. did not do that. <laughs> OK, uh, Dunk- or is that what you is that what you make me think? Because I knew I know that would be the case. And so you're you're lying in front of me and me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm playing my uh, switched uh, hat chess game right now. That's right. Uh-huh. Uh, Dunk- Shane by Wayne Newton. Five stars. It's good. Yep. I, mean, I think uh I think ruined in some ways by Ferris Bueller's day off. Yeah, I, I think so too. Uh it's sort of sad because like I you know it's it's so weird because this is such a like odd song in some ways, but like you hear Wayne Newton sing it and you're like, oh yeah, like there's a reason this is your signature number. <laughs> yeah, it really makes you get Wayne Newton, which right. is a thing I, I would never thought I'd ever say. Mm-hmm. I got Woodstock by Johnny Mitchell. Uh, I like Johnny Mitchell, but uh, I this is not my favorite song. So mm-hmm. three three stars. Um, uh, you baby by the Turtles also three stars. I might demote this to two if only because I listened to it this morning and now can't remember it at all. You all everybody. You all. <laughs> you all everybody. <laughs> you all everybody. <laughs> um. All right. That's it. I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's insomnia. That is insomnia. And if you want to read this again, (laughs) I never want to read this again. I don't think I'm ever going to read it again either. Sometimes I think about that. Like I might read Christine again. Yeah. You know, Uh I might read the shine. I'll definitely read the shiny at some point in my life again. Yeah. Uh, Probably read Carrie again. Probably read Salem's Lot. Never going to read insomnia again. Yeah. It's weird to think about that. Showing you a vision of the future using my little my little magic doctor hands. Showing you a vision of you not reading Insomnia. I'm going to be reading Insomnia? I'm going to get hit by a car? <laughs> Why would you show me that? Why would I be walking across the street with a head in a book? Fucking Encyclopedia Brown over here. What? <laughs> Michael, why would you show me that? Oh, my God. Well... I don't know. I don't know why I would show you that. Maybe it's because of all of the uh, wild government experiments that I've been a part of, just like people doing the Arrowhead Project in the Mist, which we have finally recorded a bonus episode on, Frank Darabont's 2007 The Mist. 
which you can listen to as a bonus episode accompanying this. Uh, if you go over to patreon.com slash range touch and give us $5 a month, you'll get that bonus episode and also all of our previous bonus episodes. Uh, as I already said earlier in this one, uh, there is a surprising amount of like conceptual overlap between this book and Frank Darabont's The Mist that I absolutely wasn't expecting but was overjoyed to discover. Uh, and we're also going to be joined by a special guest over there. Do we want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, Michael Weehunt is going to be on the show. Mm-hmm. Our uh, writer that we that we like a lot got a new book coming out in June mm-hmm. called The Inconsolables. It's more short fiction. Uh, you know, uh, Michael and I are both big fans of Greener Pastures, and so we're probably going to do that episode. We haven't recorded it yet, but it's more than likely going to be a big chunk about the mist, and maybe like 20, 30 minutes talking to, uh, uh, oh, we're going to have to solve this problem. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> Michael, Michael W. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, talking to uh, other Michael about... Uh, about about his fiction and he also has some like shared universe stuff going on too uh both in the new book and in like some of the fiction that is not in either of these books so i will have to we'll have to talk a bit with him about that see how he feels about the shared universe in 2023 but that's gonna be a really exciting episode uh you can hear it right now it is up on patreon.com slash range touch for you to hear at this very moment and let me give you a little hint in case you are not sold and you're not sure if you want it or not I watched the black and white version of The Mist that Frank Darabont calls his preferred version. Mm-hmm. It's his director's cut, he says. Okay. Because he always wanted to do it in black and white. And the studio said, what the fuck did you just say to me? <laughs> <laughs> you want to do what in black and white? You want to make a movie in the 3D era of cinema in black and white? <laughs> mm-hmm. Notably, didn't make that many movies after that, but nope. uh, I can say more about that as well. In the episode, I still have to watch the commentary track, but I'm going to watch the commentary track. And uh, there's also on the disc a interview that uh, or discussion, maybe, that the that Darabont and King have with one another. I'm going to watch that, too. So uh, some really cool stuff going on in that bonus episode. Again, patreon.com slash ranged touch in order to uh, check it out. Michael, what's the next book that we're going to read? So next month, we will come together once more to read Stephen King's 1995 novel, Rose Matter, which is going to, uh, well, I'll have more to say, you know, on the episode, but really, this kind of chunk of books in the early 90s does form a kind of cohesive unit within the larger, like, King oeuvre. Uh, I didn't realize all of these things came one right after the other, right? I've read all of these books, but I didn't read them in order. And when approaching them in order like this, uh, just reveals some like fascinating things about, I guess, his process, right? So uh, Rose Matter is going to be another book that deals with, um, well, women's issues, let us say, uh, women's shelters and domestic violence and uh, attacks on women's shelters. So uh, it's kind of like a weird, like, I don't know, fork off of stuff going on in Insomnia. What if this just became its own novel? Yeah, uh, this is one that I don't think I have completed. I know that I've read a big piece of it. I remember like where and when I was when I did it, but I don't know if I ever finished it. Uh, or if I did, I can't tell you like what happens at the end. So I'm I'm excited to uh, to revisit it. Um, if you uh, rate us on your uh, podcast platform of your choice, give us those five stars or the maximum score possible 
or leave a little review over on iTunes on the on Apple Podcasts, podcast.apple.com. If you do that, leave us a five-star review, and it is funny or interesting. I'll read it here on the show, maybe. Uh, here's one from Rose Turk, doing it for Steve. In sixth grade, I was reading The Talisman in class, and my teacher told me it was inappropriate for my age. The next day, I brought in my Bible I had marked up to show all the gross, violent, and sexy bits and read excerpts to classmates. The teacher never bothered me about my books again. In other ways, in other words, I may actually be a Stephen King character, and this is a perfect podcast. Aww. That is a, that is an extremely Steve character thing to do. That's very funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, sh- I'll show you. I'll read your own text against you. <laughs> yes. This is funny. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So uh, if we all come back together next month, uh, mm-hmm. having reviewed the show, left it five stars, left a funny review. Yeah. Let me, let me say a thing about reviewing it for five stars really quickly. Uh-huh. We're at 4.9 out of five. If you listen to this show and you have not rated us five stars, I would like you, please, I'm actively requesting you to go hit that five star button. To get us at the five stars out of five. We got, caught, we got some fours. Mm-hmm. And we got some ones. And mm-hmm. sometimes the ones let us know why it's a one. And it's because I ruthlessly <laughs> shit talk Bob Dylan. <laughs> okay? And I'm never going to stop. That's me. That's mm-hmm. what you're signing up. That's what you love about the show. Uh-huh. It's that I w- I'll never back down on Bob Dylan. Okay? I won't do it. But that you, I need your support. Okay? People who are... Uh, huge Bob Dylan haters. I need you out here giving us five stars. People who are completely neutral but just like the show and think this is funny, like I do. I also I think it's very funny. <laughs> Only with your stars. support can we bring down Big Dylan. Only with your support. Only with your support can we bring down the monetization engine that is Bob Dylan. <laughs> Never before has a brand name received a Nobel Prize, <laughs> and also. Just to, to the Bob Dylan lovers who are giving us the one star, he won a Nobel Prize. He can take a little criticism at the end of the Just King Things podcast. <laughs> you know, like let the dude, the dude can take the hit. Let, oh, the Nobel can com- oh, Hold on, I have an email here in my in my oh, inbox. Oh, it's no. a, it's the Nobel Committee, and they're saying they're revoking Bob Dylan's prize after they oh, listen to our show. Oh my God! Because of what I said? Yeah, yeah. They're think thanks to your diligent efforts, <laughs> we oh, have realized no. that Bob Dylan uh, is 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 fail and cringe, <laughs> and we hereby revoke his Nobel Peace Prize. Fail and cringe. Mm-hmm. Oh my! In sus? Uh, and downvote? Oh no, downvote! <laughs> I do, I, I do wish the Nobel Prize was decided by upvote, downvote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, I'm just saying, I'm just uh, here at the end of a, a three-hour-plus show. I'm just, I'm begging you, please, to give us five stars, get us up there at the tippy top, um, so that we can sync what's better. Because we do not spend any money on advertising. Only thing we do is talk about the show in public and ask you to tell your friends about it. So sometimes the algorithm helps out, but mostly it's you. Thanks to everyone who says really nice stuff about the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, there are lots of you who like the show, and that is excellent and awesome. And we do it not just for ourselves and not just for you, even though that if you didn't listen to the show, we would not do it. But I think we do it for someone else. I think I think Rose Turk, was that the name of our reviewer? 
Yeah, Rose Turk. I think they had it right. I think we do it for Steve. <laughs>